Okay, wow, hello everybody. We've already got 20 people watching on YouTube. My name is Liam Sturgis and this is something completely new. I'm gonna bring Matthew in right away. How are you, Matthew? Hey Liam, how are you? I, I'm, I'm well. Uh, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, getting getting into a relaxed mode because I came back from um, uh, CHD meeting and uh, conference and uh, a few days of vacation and I pretty much had so much work piled up I am, I am not a third of the way through my emails, <laughs> um, but I, I think I've worked like a 60-hour week. So I, I'm ready to kind of relax for, for three hours or, or however long we're here, two hours. I don't know. We'll, we'll just be here as long as we feel like it, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. What do you say? Oh, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff. And, and you know, um, speaking of a lot of stuff, uh, our, our conversation from Tuesday – has gone viral, which you called me to point out earlier today. I I, I wasn't aware. Um, so <laughs> I talk about that. Well, so this was this was uh, I, uh look. The truth is, we're still trying to wrap our head around this for a bunch of reasons. But basically, I woke up this morning. I turned on all my devices. I saw that uh, that Pandata had shared the video in a tweet, and I thought that was super cool. And then I looked and I saw 105,000 views on the video. And I thought it must be a glitch. And I checked again on a couple of different browsers and no, it indeed seemed to be that we had over 100,000 views on this video. You know, it's Fast we, we have like 350 on YouTube. Well, you know, it, it it went up by about 100 since this morning. Yeah. And uh, Rockfin, it looks like a bunch of people have watched it there. And look, we have gone up in engagement on Twitter today. So there's there's definitely something that happened. It's just impossible so far to identify who shared it. Like, who is it with a huge audience of like 500,000 people that sent this out possibly behind the scenes uh, that got 100,000 people. By the way, we're about to cross 150,000 views. So this yeah. morning, it was 45,000 views less than what it is now. Yeah, um, it, I, I kind of looked through my Substacks. I, I subscribed to like 200 Substacks. So, you know, that's kind of impossible. But, uh, you know, just scanning the 800-pound gorillas, and I didn't see I didn't see it. But it, it is highly topical, right? Um, hmm. You know, the, everybody's been waiting for a statistical genetics paper to talk about this, right? right? Early on, early on, we were just told, no, this couldn't be genetics engineering because you would see fingerprints at like, you know, restriction sites. And, you know, lo and behold, somebody comes in and says, hey, look, the restriction sites are spaced such that it would be almost statistically impossible for this to happen at random. Um, yeah. And there's some, few, there's, there's some other arguments in the paper too, but that's, you know, that's a, that's a big one that kind of stands out and screams. Um, that and the ratio of, uh, of non-synonymous to synonymous codons. So, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's a conversation that needed to happen. Um, I wish it had happened before now. I'm sure that somebody would have done this in 2020 had there not been so much pressure, you know, uh, on, on this because it, it's not something that had to take two and a half years to get to. Right. Well, what, what do you think makes Alex so special in that regard? Why, why him? Why now? You know, was it just that now I can't remember if he addressed this in our chat, but did he come across something, you know, just more recently that made him want to investigate further or did he wait this whole time? I can't remember. 
he's he's what a scientist should be. Well, first of all, he he's got a PhD, you know, both in mathematics and in biology, um, and he he's just sort of the free spirited, curious type. He's not a power hungry type of individual. You know, he, he, he seems like scientists used to seem to me more often. Um, but, you know, he, he just got interested. Right. Uh, and if nobody else is doing the work, you know, why not do the work? Right. Right. <laughs> Anyhow. And, and good on him. Thank you. A huge thank you again to Alex. And he's been very nice on, on Twitter since. So he's he clearly felt that this was as productive as we did. Um, but that's that's not necessarily what we're, that's just one weird thing that happened today. Another weird thing. It's snowing here in Vancouver. We went from the most like from a historic drought in the Pacific Northwest to full on snow seemingly overnight. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. The, um, the, the American audience is watching right now going, it's not weird to snow in Canada. No, but so you, you have to you understand. Have to justify that a little better. So you have to understand. Well, th that's why I said Pacific Northwest, Matthew, because <laughs> British Columbia, which is in Canada, and then directly south, uh, Washington State. And this, well, hey, look at that. It's going to lead us right into our actual topic. You get that tonight. marine climate that warms up the ocean. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you saw this episode of Rounding the News that I did, but I actually, I found a reason why there might be this strange like pocket basically uh i don't want to get into it now but that's what it is you have the 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 you have british columbia washington state and oregon and the climate in one is the climate in all of them like they, it's all going to be the same weather more or less so if anyone is here from oregon or uh you know seattle or something is it snowing there that's what i want to know but it took me by surprise um Man, a bunch of other stuff happened. But the big thing that's going on and the reason we're here is um, the midterm elections in the United States are um, like essentially right now, um, especially if you think about all the mail in ballots that have been already going in for several weeks. Um, and we wanted to talk about it because this is this is pretty historic. Uh, which I'm sure uh, we're, can be we're, argued about every election. But. We're, we're going to talk about a lot of things. I mean, the, the, the entire um, elective governance process just looks like it's in chaos yep. and it's unclear. Um, I, I'm not sure that we live in an electoral democracy at the moment. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are other people who feel that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know where we are in this process, but there has been, uh, an epic power consolidation the last few years. And really, you know, I, I've tried to argue at least somewhat publicly and certainly privately, uh, often look, um, this pandemic is not about a virus. Uh, it, it is about economics. And you can see the machinery moving prior to the, you know, the appearance of the virus. Hmm. So, you know, th th there is something very major going on in the world. And, you know, we're doing this election coverage. I'm not even sure that the election matters. Right. I mean, I, I do. I personally, I personally don't want uh, Democrats to have all, you know, two houses of Congress and the presidency. If yeah, there's yeah. anything that might slow down uh, processes that would go on, uh, it would be, you know, a, a split. So, you know, it, like I'm, I'm not a partisan. Um, I am I am, you know, rooting for the Republicans to take at least, you know, one house of Congress. I think they'll probably take both. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th that's the way it seems to be shaping up. And uh, but but but, you know, we, we need to talk about other things you know, other pieces of this, because, you know, the, the amount, uh, the, you know, the, the number of people who seem to be compromised, you know, who, who just don't speak out about things that are clearly odd that are going on. Right. 
the Democrats have always had activists. The Democratic Party has lots of activists of different types. Right. And you can always find an activist about something suddenly until the pandemic. Right. You have almost no none of the political you know, machinery within the Democratic Party actually going, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, making the rich, the children retarded. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, putting masks on them and, and you know, pushing them out of schools uh, yeah. for, for the for the sake of this, you know, health security theater. And so, you know, obviously some of the election will come down to this health security theater and, uh, you know, and, and the crushing of the economy. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that as we, as we go on. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm actually going to, before we move on, um, and I said that I would do this on my sub stack. So I'm going to go ahead and just while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to do it now before we get into uh, uh, actual election stuff. I'm, I'm going to mention um, I come from a political family, um, though the, the highest level of politics uh, hasn't been since like the 19th century. But like I have, you know, I have two uncles uh, who worked for the two largest lobbying firms in Alabama, one a Republican and one a Democrat. Um, and uh, so, so that, that's sort of like the modern day. My, my mother, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, uh, worked for uh, Governor Waller in Mississippi. He was the only Republican in a Democratic administration. And actually, when, when a scandal went down where um, Mississippi lost its, uh, its votes in deciding its... Uh, candidate, I think uh, it, there, there was there was like a scandal about buying um, uh, people to serve as electors, hmm. and uh, and apparently my my grandfather was sort of set up to be the bagman so that they could point at a Republican, uh, it, it, so that the Waller administration could you know try to get away with it. But <clears throat> it what it was was um, you know the Democrats in in Mississippi were. You know, they had the majority of the black vote there, but they were terribly racist. They would literally set up two campaign staffs, you know, one to, um, you know, bring in white vote, one to bring in black vote. And there were some major black Republican leaders, and some of them were murdered throughout, you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, there was one named, uh, I think his name was like James Carney, I, I think. Um, and uh, he, he was uh, famously murdered when he was becoming one of the more prominent politicians, period, in the Republican Party nationally. But, um, you know, th there was a lot of control going on there. But, you know, the, the one Republican kind of got pushed out. But really, um, my family's political story. So my, uh, I'll mention this. People have asked me very often, why do you have one T in your first name? Mm. And it's because of uh, this political wing of my family. And here's the explanation. My full name is Matthew Benton Crawford. And so there were two families, the Matthews and the Bentons. So my, my first name comes from this last name from this family. This goes back to the early 1800s. Uh, these were rival political families, uh, I think, in, in Missouri. Um, uh, one, of, one of them had a very famous senator, Thomas Hart Benton. And that's the guy who shot Andrew Jackson right in the butt in a duel. So I'm, I'm descended from this guy who shot our seventh president, in the butt and later they became fast friends uh in fact um thomas hart benton was andrew jackson's right hand man in the senate and he was referred to as old bullion so if you've ever heard of old bullion um you know apparently i'm descended from him but but it or or it, i'm either descended from him or like a brother or something like that i think i'm descended from him but uh, it, this it's it's actually hard to track the family records that far back for this reason 
So there were these two rival political families. It was kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, like literally, you know, shootings and things like that, you know, like, like violence between the families. And uh, there was a child from each family who got together and, uh, and, and they were going to get married. So you know, one Matthews and one Benton, and they were disowned by both families. And so they ran away uh, from Missouri, and I think they went to Louisiana. And then the family eventually um, wound up in Mississippi. And But it's hard to track the records back because there was some person in that family who wound up being like a homeless hobo. And so he goes in and out of the census in like the 1940s, mm. 1950s. But his wife was my, I believe, my great-great-grandmother who raised my great-grandmother. I knew my great-grandmother very well when I was growing up. She helped take care of me. Um, but uh, my great-great-grandmother was um, maybe the youngest person to have graduated college in Mississippi at the time, or the youngest person to graduate with a math degree, one or the other. She was, she graduated from college at the age of 16 with a math degree, but um, did not become a professional mathematician. She, um, because her husband had, um, you know, he, he, he was a drunk. He had some sort of mental illness issue, uh, and he became a hobo. And so, you know, that, that was his story. Um, but... Uh, so my parents decided to reunite family names. So uh, that's where I get Matthew is, is from Matthews and, and my middle name Benton from uh, the Thomas Hart Benton family. So anyhow, uh, <laughs> I, I've always had a little bit of a, of a fascination of historical politics, just even looking back at my own family story. But, you know, I've had uh, people on both sides of the aisles, um, you know, in, in, in both sides of my family, uh, mothers and fathers. So anyhow, uh, th that's probably more than anybody needs to know. But, but because it's a Romeo and Juliet story, it's 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 kind of fun. That's tremendously fascinating, and it's familiar. And it, it, the thing that got my uh, my 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 memory going was the Andrew Jackson duel situation. And I feel I'm I'm sure Andrew Jackson got into more than one duel. However, that right. bullet in the butt story I've heard <laughs> somewhere on an on a podcast. I think it would have been called. I'm going to find it because well, I want to now go this, back. There's another mm -hmm. famous duel that got talked about several years ago with Aaron Burr, but that was a different one. Uh, and yeah. I remember that one being like all over commercials in the news and whatnot. But the yeah, dueling was a thing back then, right? I mean, yeah. you know, how many how many people would have been president who weren't, uh, other than the fact that they were killed in the duel? You know, we, we don't even know, right? Yeah, they just had a slightly slower draw. <laughs> well, or, well, or, or worse aim. Or worse aim, right? Like, uh, it, it was not easy to hit somebody with a, you know, a musket. Right. You know, so right. The, the, there's a lot that could go on in a duel. Okay. Well, how about this? Because it's it's important to me that we engage with the audience today, mostly because we promised we would. So how about this? Let's bring up just a couple of, we've got some super chats and then some uh, chats on Rumble. Um, first things first. Carl Johnson's not much of a voter. Fair enough. And he also points out we are competing with VSRF Weekly Update. And unfortunately, there's not a heck of a lot we can do because we now have such a broad community of very talented, very kind, uh, and very active people making stuff at all hours of the day. Um, and so it's very difficult to yeah, avoid. VSRF is great. You know, if you want to go watch that, go watch that. Or if you want to yeah. watch this later, or you want to watch them later, they, they do so much good work over there. So, you know, and maybe, maybe some of them will come over and join us when they're done. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. Um, so there's that. And then, uh, Lodazel in response to my earlier question, unreasonably cold and snowy last 10 days or so here in Idaho, which is the other 
state that borders British Columbia, and it is the state that I have considered escaping to when things have gotten particularly bad up here in Canada. Um, and now on to the politics. So Ellen Osuna says, if Ron Johnson can investigate the COVID crimes, that would be worth voting Republican for, even as lesser evil. And I used to vote Dem slash Green. So this is obviously a very, you know, even for the non-political people, people who are engaging in the COVID situation, this is a common theme between uh, Senator Johnson and Senator Rand Paul. These two, both Republican, both very outspoken. Rand Paul's focused more on Fauci and the gain-of-function stuff, whereas Ron Johnson, of course, brought, you know, the first group of vaccine-injured people to the world stage, uh, which was a very bold move on his part. And he's done incredible work since, including behind the scenes, as far as I uh, understand. So what what what's your take on, um, on the concept of... Uh, Johnson and perhaps his allies being able to do something about the COVID, uh, you know, situation if they, which are, if I think they are going to be reelected, if and when they are reelected. What do you think? You're muted. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do I think? Uh, th this is okay. I, I'm I'm going to speak freely. I'm going to speak honestly about this. Um, I don't think it matters. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I do think that we should vote, right? Uh, we, we should uh, do our best to throw people into the mix who are the least likely to be compromised. Uh, we should do our best to make sure that one party does not have, you know, especially the Democratic Party, because they just look insane the last few years, right? Um, they, they've, you know, I, I, I've never been um, I've, in national elections. I've never really. Uh, you know, voted much for either of the major parties. Uh, locally, it's easier. You know, you can look people in the eyes, you can figure out who you trust. Um, like I almost don't care what a person's party affiliation is more locally, but on a national level, you know, I, I, I haven't trusted a lot of these people for a very long time. Um, I, but I, I would rather have split government than the insanity of what is this, you know, this Biden administration. I mean, I, I'm not even sure, you know, you, whether or not the election was stolen at, at the final level in 2020, which I, I lean toward that that's what happened. I think that that even the the, the primaries uh, may have been stolen ahead of that. I mean, yeah. there was no point at which Biden looked like any major candidate that I've ever seen in terms of um, you know energy appearance, uh, connection with the voters. Um, I, the whole thing just, it, it just looks like a puppet show that we're watching. I think that we are in the middle of um, government theater, world government theater. I'm I'm not even sure what to think about the war in Ukraine. I don't I don't know 100 for sure if I think that that is. I mean I, I think that there are elements of that that are absolutely puppeteered. Uh, but it's not clear to me whether or not the whole war is perhaps puppeteered. Right. Uh, and I, I'm I'm even going to mention this when you start looking around uh, the pandemic uh, names like Peter Daszak. Ralph Barrick, uh, there's um, the the Vindeman twins. There was one that Meryl Nash wrote about, and I can't remember his name, but she wrote about it on her Substack just the other day. Who um, created uh, a position in like the HHS that controlled the stockpiles of like PPE? He created it when he was in one position working for a senator, and then he was assigned into that position by by the current administration, or maybe it was the actually it might have been the Trump administration. Uh, but it was almost as if and, and he he's Ukrainian also. Yeah. And and when you say somebody's Ukrainian, you know, what does that mean politically? 
right? This was a part of the Soviet Union, but of course, Ukraine was also Russia's, um, you know, whipping, you know, whipping boy, or it, it, it's hard to say um, how many of those people are pro-Russian and how many of those people are sort of pro-independence or pro-West. There is a split. It's very much like a lot of places in the world where, where boundaries have been drawn during the nation state era, you know, just like in Arabia after World War One, right? Um, the, the British and the French, um, you know, got together, drew up a map and said, uh, hey, we're going to put people together who are always going to be infighting. That way they're easier to control, divide and conquer. And the East India companies always played that way everywhere they went. That was part of what colonialism was about was, you know, getting, you know, playing one prince against another so that it's easier to take the island of, you know, uh, the, the Malaysian islands and, and, you know, turn them into a, a surf factory, right? So, um, you know, when, well, when I look at things that way, uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to know what's theater and what's not, but really the U.S. has always looked like theater to a degree, but it's, it, it, that has ramped up like, like a thousand percent in the last decade. Yeah. Oh uh, man, there's a lot of things I could say. I, you brought up Ukraine and tomorrow on rounding the news, I'm going to be doing a mini deep dive into this because what, what we have is potentially a nuclear standoff and we have a country that is not in NATO that is being, it's, it looks pretty transparently puppeteered by NATO. And I mean the government, not the people. Right. Um, and it's, when you uh, hear the news of, oh, U.S. boots are now officially on the ground in Ukraine, which is the news of the last couple of days, uh, you then it, 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 it would be beneficial for people to go back and look at what happened in Ukraine right after World War II and which U.S. intelligence agency went in and scooped up various um, anti-Soviet perhaps pro-Nazi groups. So more on that tomorrow. So Ukraine is, and, and Ukraine, like when the Soviet Union fell, the, like, the Ukraine we have today, as far as I understand, is sort of a, a mishmash of various regions that doesn't necessarily have national unity. Like you're saying, there's a division between the pro, it seems pro-West and you know, pro-Russian because it's sort of an arbitrary drawn uh, map. So it's very complicated. It's very interesting. But it's weird that Ukraine keeps coming back. It's like a through line through a number of these things. Um, you have that whole biolabs discussion that came up. And look at that tied to the current president. It's very, very weird. It's very weird. And then the other thing I wanted to say was, and you talk about the potential that the election was indeed stolen. And I, I, I agree with, I think, the underlying facts that you're referencing. But the more I see and the more we talk about how it sort of doesn't matter who wins, the more I realize or the more I ask, was it stolen or was it simply a continuation of a selection process that perhaps has been the case for every election for the last couple of decades? That's just a hypothetical, but that's how it's starting to feel to me. Like this past election wasn't an exception. It was sort of the rule. And maybe the difference is more people noticed. Well, you know what? Um, we, we, we've kind of talked very generally. We're, we're going to be sharing memes throughout the day, but I'm going to go ahead and invite the audience. It looks like over, over the platforms, there are nearly 100 people uh, who have joined us who are watching. And, and what I'd like to encourage, I, I should bring up Rockfin because I, I don't often see what people there are saying. Or maybe, maybe you cover Rockfin. And I'll be yeah. looking at the rumble window as far as like, you know, what people are talking about. But we, we want to invite people, you know, you participate, like, you know, tell us what you think of the candidates that are like, 
you know, a thousand candidates, right, across the country who are vying for these positions, uh, mostly in the House, you know, a third of the Senate seats, um, you know, whatever. Um, that, that's a lot of people. So, you know, how, how many do I know uh, about uh, deeply? Ten, uh, you know, superficially, I don't know. It might be a hundred, probably less. Um, but you know what? Uh, you know, throw out your opinion, throw out the dirt, right? Uh, th that's a lot of what we're often talking about. We want to know, you know, what kind of people are are complete dirt <laughs> themselves who are running for office because you get a lot of that, right? I mean, yep. you know, maybe, maybe seventy percent of the people in politics are, are dirty on some level, um, but uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people. You know, it, I'm in Texas right now. It, it, it's almost insane to me. That in Texas, there's this guy Beto who goes by the name Beto, Beto or whatever. You know, he he he's chosen this name for like cred in um, in the Mexican American community, right? But it, how is this guy a major politician? This is a guy who drove drunk, and this is and somebody correct me if I if I'm getting any of this story wrong at all. He was um he was a guy who was driving around drunk, crashed into people, uh, crashed into another car. Uh, maybe multiple cars, something. It was, it was this big wreck. And he just drove away without seeing if he killed anybody, right? Without seeing if somebody needed his help or was injured. Um, wow. you know, later was pulled over, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, slithered out of the car, slobbering drunk. Um, you know, when when people who, who don't have the values to not do that <laughs> can, actually, uh, can actually run for political positions, you know, you, you have to wonder where are we politically? Like nobody's going to step up. Uh, like Democrats have, have no better sense of, you know, I can promote these values without looking like, you know, some, somebody like that may be compromised, you know, when you see somebody who gets in that much trouble. Uh, and, and I don't know, the, the guy's just weird. He seems like an actor to me, you know, he goes around, he, he somebody, I, I think somebody directed him into how to like stand on tables and use his arms <laughs> um, to, to create movement, right? Like people say, you know, when, when, and I'm doing it right now, just like naturally, right? If you do any, if you've ever done any public speaking, you know that moving your hands, it, it I mean, in a sense, you can sort of like keep body balance with it, right? It makes sense too, but there are also things that you get taught um, as a speaker. And I think, I think he looks coached, right? Like, well, he, they are, they're certainly all coached. Like they all get a certain degree of media training, but to the extent that everything about them is manufactured, there's certainly some of those folks too. And it's interesting how often this drunk driving uh, mistake is made by certain people. And the other big story that's in the news right now is of course, uh, Paul Pelosi being attacked with a hammer by this guy. And there's a lot to that story that is very confusing, but Paul Pelosi, and this is not to say it was in any way good or the, like violence is never, ever, ever good. Just to be clear, I bring him up because he also recently was caught drunk driving and nothing happened. Um, so it's 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 weird. There is this different set of rules among certain uh, powerful people that seem to help them when they make these mistakes. It's It's very odd. Yeah, and it's not clear how often um, that coaching is already going on, or how often, you know, somebody reaches out to get somebody who may be easy to compromise or is already in trouble, and then you know picks them and coaches them because, you know, maybe they maybe they look good on camera, you know, they look yeah, like a photograph or something. Maybe they look good in a mugshot, <laughs> like Justin Trudeau. <laughs> he he looks darn good in a mugshot.
Well, and I want to invite or I want to uh, welcome, hopefully some of the folks watching us are from the Viva Barnes Law audience. I went in and posted a link and let people know that we were doing this. And the reason I did that is primarily because Viva Barnes Law, specifically Robert Barnes and um, another gentleman named uh, Richard Barris, uh, they, I found, uh, have had a tremendous um uh, robust discussion over the course of the last year that I've had a wonderful time following. And uh, I learned a lot of names like you. I'm not very familiar with specific candidates, but there are some names now that I'm becoming familiar with. For example, J.D. Vance, or uh, I think Blake Masters is another. Um, and then Carrie Lake in Arizona. And these are candidates that, in fact, it seems Viva and Barnes had on their sidebar early on, and they vouch for. Apart from them, I don't really know. I know Chuck Schumer's still running in New York. <laughs> There's also a theory that's um, shared by a lot of people who, who you know, think about politics beyond what's on TV, which is that um, people in Congress are not really behind the power anyhow, right? When you look at a lot of members of Congress, they're very often the spouse of somebody who manages, you know, investments or you know, who, who may actually be the power behind that particular seat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think like that we often talk about these things in ways like if you, if you say that to someone uh, like my dad, for example, um, there's two ways you can say the same thing. And it's crazy how differently it's heard. If you say, Oh dad, Congress isn't in control. There's, you know, there's people pulling the strings. He says, I should go see my doctor and see if, about getting a prescription. But if I say, you know, there's huge money lobbying Congress for specific policies, he'll go, yeah, yeah, of course. And he'll list off a bunch of examples. But isn't that the exact, isn't that what we're saying? Just with two different sets of words. Right. Um, yeah, we're, we're set up. Um, we're set up with a lot of uh, peer pressure from very early on in life. I mean, you know, we're, we're we grew up in these schools that are set up for us for 13 years. I mean, that's a long time. You know, it's the majority of, uh, of the time that we're alive until we're around 18 years old. And, uh, and, and we're given a picture of what the world looks like. And then, you know, thereafter, if you go against the grain, you know, what, you know, the, the skilled TV watcher, you know, majority viewpoint, the consensus, um, and you know, what, what, what the people on television tell you, um, then, then you're castigated and you're mocked and it doesn't matter what the facts look like, um, you know, most people won't even begin to think about it. Uh, but you're right, you know, people will begin to think about conspiratorial on a level that jives with what they have heard already on TV. And right. I think that, that what we're told on TV is usually last generation corruption, maybe even two generations ago. I mean, there's always been money that's controlled politics from time immemorial, right? I mean, you go back to uh, the Roman Senate and and, you know, right there, you've got a pit of corruption that developed from mm. something that was initially, you know, and probably started out as good as, you know, the, the U.S. constitutional government started out. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was corrupted in its day. So um, but corruption, you know, I'm going to bring this in. Um, I was talking to uh, a friend in um, in intelligence a few weeks ago and uh, pointed me toward um, this this idea that has always been an intelligence about counterintelligence about, um, you know, how it is that double agents are pinpointed and selected. And there's an acronym that they use and that's M I C E. Have you heard this before? No. 
So people get people are vetted uh, and, and, and tr you know, try to profile people and figure out, are they going to be interested in money? Ideology? Is it going to require compromising or coercing them? Or ego? And that's the acronym M-I-C-E, of course, that's a play on rat, of course, but you know, um, that acronym is is used in the intelligence community as, as far as like understanding the, the base motivations. I'm writing that down. That's incredible insight. <laughs> right. Is this something that's documented and talked about like that? You didn't just reveal any kind of secret. Um, no, no, no. I, I immediately got on the Internet and found it. Hmm. So um, it, it is something that is, you know, talked about, uh, you know, not like it's a daily conversation or anything, but uh, other people know the acronym. Sure. What, what was the I? Uh, ideology. Ideology. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Who's your you true know, believer? What's that? Who's your true believer? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like you, cause, and you mentioned like having this friend in intelligence you talk to, um, my uncle was in Canadian intelligence. We've got Robert Malone who works, you know, with intelligence and it's interesting the way we talk oftentimes intelligence is 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 sort of relegated to being the bad guy by default and that makes sense when you think about people's experience over the last decade learning about how the nsa is spying on everybody learning about how the cia used black sites to torture people and get false confessions out of people who may or may not have actually committed the crazy acts they're you know they said they did um and it's just interesting. I don't. I don't have a point so much as to muse out loud on the 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 enigma of intelligence as a um, as a concept in our society, and how they can be simultaneously just people we know, and you know, uh, but then also be the the baddie. Um, I, I don't know. We're, we're we're going down a lot of rabbit holes. We, we are mentioned a specific election, and and you know what? That's fine with me. You know, I mean, I, I want to encourage people out there, like. You know, uh, where are you? You know, tell us what state or district you're in. Um, you know, yeah. who's running there? Tell us about the candidates and we'll go there. You know, I mean, let, let, let's talk about some of the elections that are going on. Uh, what are the close ones? What are, you know, how, how is it looking overall? I mean, I, I do know that it, that it kind of tilted toward, you know, sort of a coin flip the Democrats had looked like, you know, and, and not that I checked whether or not any of these polls were accurate or, or even looked at it, what they were saying. I, I figured the Republicans were going to, you know, we're going to take at least one branch, but probably both. Yeah. But it, it, it really feels socially like you look across uh, the social media landscape and the people that I've known who have always been sort of, you know, loudly blue um, are not very loud right now. You know, you, you've just you've got people like Rob Reiner on Twitter who like I, I think like every 47 seconds, he's like, you have to vote blue or the world is going to end. You know, yeah. but, uh, uh, you, know you don't see the same level of followers that that you would normally see like people you would know in person that you would spot you know saying the same things or following that tweet you know right so um <laughs> I, I i bet he used to have a life <laughs> yeah well i i am surprised with the amount of time people like that are on twitter uh because presumably these people have jobs to go do and they don't appear to and it is interesting the hyperbole uh they, they literally vote uh, like I, I i kept seeing today vote blue or uh or democracy will literally dissolve uh hyperbole like that um and i think you're right about the people who used to be loud are now quiet and i think except for you know folks like reiner but i i think it has to do with lack of anything specific to point at. Like, 
usually you'll have good things happen, I feel, in every administration that you could choose to prop up and then try to ignore the inevitable bad stuff. But as far as I can tell, not a lot has gone well since the last presidential election. Um, I don't know. It just seems like I don't think Republicans by default are the are, are the obvious choice, but it appears as though it's the Republican candidates who have zeroed in on the things that are actually hurting people or that people are actually lacking. And maybe it's opportunistic. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if there's a lot of ammo for, for, for democratic vocalization, you know? Um, Hey, this is exciting. We have a friend who just popped in the background. Hello, doc. Hey, how you guys doing? I'm doing well. Good to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Nice meeting you guys too. So, uh, we, you know, we, we haven't even really gotten into uh, uh, any uh, specific elections so far. We're kind of discussing, um, you know, the, the things that kind of well up, um, the things that we're heading into right now. And um, I, I was about to kind of shift the conversation a little bit to inflation because I, I think this has a lot to do with what, with what a lot of people are thinking. I think a lot of people... Uh, who might have otherwise voted Democratic, especially independents in the middle, are leaning more Republican at the moment because inflation is so bad. Um, it, it, this is a really tricky one, though. Like, right, I think what whatever's going on with the dollar and the economy, uh, I, I feel like I have a pretty good economics brain. You know, I spent um, spent my years on Wall Street, and and you know, thinking through this, there's so much hidden that people don't even see, and we may see a weird reversal of this inflation. But it's being held back at the moment, and I'm not sure exactly all the reasons why. Uh, maybe, maybe to hide losses, right? Like, I'll give an example: the car market is about to get really, really weird, right? We had cash for clunkers a little over a decade ago under the Obama era. I actually bought a car during that time. Um, <clears throat> traded in an older car and got a new car. Uh, I. Um, the the number of used vehicles got sucked out of the market and the, the prices of them soared. And this was part of, you know, this was one of the biggest movers of inflation, right? Yep. And and uh, because things were so weird in the car market, uh, uh, new car dealerships were allowed to sell a greater percentage of used cars in their volume. Like a lot of those uh, car dealerships are capped at 10%, but they were allowed to sell you know a much greater proportion of used cars and but new cars that were being sold what i'm told is that there were a lot of people who didn't have to make payments on oh. these new cars and that there, there are people who bought new cars during the pandemic who are 18 months or more behind and that there is a point at which there is going to be an allowance to go repo those cars but nobody wants to do it yet the reason they don't want to do it yet is because they can't get enough money to cover the loans in an auction market Right. They like somebody bought a new car for thirty thousand. Maybe they made four thousand dollars in payments. You know, maybe somebody's gonna try to get, you know, twenty-three thousand back, but they, you know, they take it to auction and and, and there's not gonna be a bid more than seventeen. So they're like, Whoa, we can't do this with all these cars because literally these companies would show these massive losses or maybe even go bankrupt. So a lot of this is being held out of the market. I think we're going to see a glut, for instance, of cars in the market, and that's going to push the prices back down. In fact, it's already started, but I think it's going to go boom. 
And it's not like, you know, deflation's good either, <laughs> right? But, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, you know, we, we may see this inflation deflation roller coaster. Meanwhile, if, if Europe just collapses and has to take on the dollar as, as a, like a, as a functional currency, then that would have people buying up dollars, which would make the dollar stronger at the same time that these markets are, are suddenly like crashing, uh, come crash, the, the dollar may become very strong. We may see massive deflation. And it may be that like a few years after that, because we're still printing money, we may have another roller coaster ride back up the inflation. I think that's how it's going to happen, actually. But right now, we're still we're still at the inflation side. We're coming back down. But, uh, you know, the, the voters simply aren't happy, right? You know, it doesn't matter uh, how many oil reserves you take out of the salt mines and try to dump in the market to make it cheaper for people to drive around for a few days. Pe- people know that this isn't the issue. Food's the issue. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, it's funny you mentioned about the cars. I just, what do you make of this? Well, we've just uh, replaced both of ours. Well, we've replaced one of our two cars. Uh, uh, but the funny thing with mine was it was an accident and got paid. The insurance paid off uh, 5000 more than I paid for the car two years ago. Based on market. No. Yeah, yeah based on uh, current market value for the car. So, uh, yeah, car price has been pretty crazy. <laughs> Uh, and I, I think I'm, I'm not real sure about the deflationary side unless, unless, like you say, if they've really been holding off on repossessing and there's about to be a huge glut of these repossessed cars in the market, you're right. There might, might, might well drive down cars quite a bit. Though they have a huge amount to drop down. I mean, I mean the other problem, we replaced my wife's car and I think we only lost, we bought it four years ago, and I think we lost $3,000 on it, despite, you know, having it been halfway across the country and back with us. Uh, and so, I mean, the, the prices out there are nuts, and you do look at it and think, ah, that's got to come down, that's got to come down. But it'll be real curious to see if we can actually get the supply to really catch up. I mean, uh, that, that's been my, uh, that's been the way I've been seeing it for the past couple of years, is that on the one hand, they just kneecap supply in 2020, by forcing lockdowns and, you know, cut whole country shutting down. Yeah. And at the same time, just went here, have a, have a bucket full of cash. Housing Housing boom, but people are actually uh, breaking uh, like new mortgage agreements at a faster rate than ever before. And so the housing market's coming back down too, also with higher interest rates, the higher interest rates go, the less long-term assets, or, you know, the more depressed becomes the price of long-term assets yeah. and, and the stock market and bonds and everything else that that depends on forward valuations from those interest rates. Um, but I don't think anybody's going to care at this point. I think I think we're too far along the inflation route for people to even have time to turn and think. You know, not to mention, uh, you know, it's not it's not like it it really has to do with good governance versus bad governance. All we've seen is bad governance. So. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I just brought this up. This is actually Politico, and I wouldn't normally go to Politico, except that weirdly, I find very few websites have, have like almost nobody is like set up to cover the the midterm elections. And I wonder if that's mm-hmm. intentional, right? Like literally, if you if you go into your search engine and search around, I find less for this election as far as like political maps and things like that than I've ever seen before. It's very mm-hmm. strange. Almost really like the discussion seems to need to be more controlled. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So what do we have here? So like, what where, are... Where should we go? What's an interesting state? Pennsylvania is fun. Pennsylvania. Hey. Take a look. Right. Television doctor versus Frankenstein. Oh, man. Fabulous. 
Yeah, I haven't watched the uh, debate that everyone's talking about, but I. Th- oh yeah, the Fetterman Oz thing. Yeah. Oh right, right, right. Okay, so here's yeah. the way that went down, and I, and I only watched like clips from it. Like I, I, I was on vacation. We were out in a cabin in the woods when this went down. So, um, <laughs> and, I, and I mostly didn't care. I just like the result was uh, basically you have a guy who's had a stroke, and um, it, it's it's like a weekend at Bernie's type of candidacy, right? And 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 that was exposed. Like he, he he couldn't string sentences together well, and um, and I, I you know I'm I'm going to assume that that's real. I mean, there's a lot of political theater. I'm I, and I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying that couldn't be like planned theater. I don't even know. Like I don't trust. I, I trust less that I see on TV than I ever have ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but uh, yeah, um, you know, Fetterman just looks like a goofball. Now, I'm I'm not an Oz fan, <laughs> but, yeah. but I'm pretty sure he's going to win now, right? Um, and you know, like I said, I, I don't want the Democrats to control all of federal government. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it, it, any more, I, you know, what else can we say about that one? Or, or, you know, what, what, what about the house? Do we know any of the candidates there who, um, That's where it seems to me like it's going to be a bit more interesting if there's, I haven't been keeping track of it real hard, but, uh, noticed earlier in the week that a lot of those races coming over to the leaning Republican side pretty hard. And, you know, they'd been pushing, oh, it's going to be Democrat, it's going to be Democrat for a bit. And then all this past week, suddenly all the polls shifted immediately. Uh, so if I usually look on Politico, I usually, was, I usually check out a real clear politics on this. But uh, I wouldn't be too surprised to find that with the exception of the normal, you know, the Philadelphia, Pittsburgh and Harrisburg regions, that there's on a pretty hard swing. Now, is that going to be... No, I don't know. Do we have anybody from Pennsylvania who wants to chime in? Anybody in the audience? Should we share another meme? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to look at some of these memes because it's funny. I think they're going to be more informative than we expect. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and share. I'm, I'm going to share something uh, slightly different um, just because we had, um, we had a guy named Liam Madden on – uh, the podcast a few weeks ago. And, uh, uh, so yeah, he, he's running for Congress. He is, he's ex Marine, um, entrepreneur. Um, but he, he's neither a Republican or a Democrat. There's an R by his name. Let's go find that R. Um, he, he's Vermont, right? So I, yeah. I guess, um, Vermont has an open primary situation mm-hmm. where, um, you can run in the Republican primary without being, um, a Republican. So that's what he did. He, he ran and he won that, that primary. So now um, he, he's up against uh, Becca uh, Balint. And oh yeah, I, I looked up Becca Balint and she, she is clearly your, um, your democratic um, uh, in like, she, she gets a lot of money from the corporations. Lots of money gets steered toward her. Um, if you go look up the amount of spending, like I, I think she's done like a hundred times as much spending as Liam, or it was that way like a month ago. Um, she is clearly important to them. Uh, you know, I, I, not a lot of House candidates get the kind of money that she's been able to spend in this election. So this will be a really interesting one. Can a guy spending a hundred something thousand dollars be somebody? You know, uh, or, or, or maybe, maybe it was like thirteen. I can't remember. Whatever it was, it was either like you know, like thirteen thousand to like a million, or it, it seemed like a hundred to one or forty to one. Forty to one, I think, was the ratio. Anyway, I, I think I said some. Yeah, calculated that in the article, so maybe it's down here somewhere. Um, 
Oh, hey, hey, there. We got it right there. Oh, look at that. Yep. Uh, at the time, almost a million dollars spent versus 23000 And it, it, it's important to watch this, and it's, it's important to see because, you know, what, what we've seen is, is a trucker throw his hat into the ring and win a state, right? Just recently. <laughs> you know, that can happen in New Jersey. Is it possible that the way election politics turns around in the U.S., if we still have an electoral republic, if that still exists? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know, you know, if, if there is some sort of like, you know, fascist deep state that literally has all control, but we might as well try, right? Um, if enough people throw their hats in there, if you can win an election spending $23,000 against a million dollars, I mean, uh, you know, uh, supposedly that's the AOC story. I'm not sure that that was real. I think that was theater. And in fact, I wrote an article about that. Um, uh, I, I don't know what, what AOC story. Can you, can you elaborate? Yeah. So um, AOC, the person that she, um, that she unseated was Joe Crowley. And Joe Crowley was, um, it, it, there were articles written about how he was being groomed to be the next um, uh, Speaker of the House. Or, um, yeah, I, I, I think he was being groomed to be like, the next Speaker of the House. Like he, is, he's, he was a big time incumbent, um, you know, considered one of the top in the party. He'd been there forever. He had brought, and, and he had brought a ton of business to his district. Like there are all these companies that had given him money every time he ran, you know, insurance corporations, um, but companies that he helped woo into his district. So it's weird that he would get beat with so few, vote, few votes, right? Like what happened in the primary was he got a fraction of the votes he got in the previous primary. It wasn't just that she got some tremendous number of votes. It was that he didn't get the votes that he normally would. He, he, he got... I don't know if it was like a small five-digit number in this very large district um, where he had gotten over 100,000 votes in the previous election. Uh, it, it, and, you know, forgive me if I if I have the numbers a little bit wrong, but it looked very strange because you would think these big corporations that he had worked with would still have plenty of employees happy to step out and vote for him. But it almost looked like he was throwing the election. He had all this money, but he, his campaign headquarters was not even in his district, Right. Uh, supposedly, uh, he, he, uh, so this is, this is what somebody told me. I've never been able to find the commercials to watch them. Um, or maybe I found one, but it, there was some, like a, a bunch of money was spent on a commercial that was never aired. Right. That it was like their, their big campaign campaign commercial. And so, and somebody who knows the district, maybe somebody out there knows the story better than I do, but this is what I was finding when I, when I researched this online, uh, that, that he sent out an email shortly before the election, getting the date of the primary wrong. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of email that you vet, right? <laughs> um, so there, you know, and and let, let's consider the money and the politics going on there. He wound up stepping away and becoming the chairman of one of the world's most powerful lobbying groups. Um, and and um, the name is like uh, Squire Patton Bog, Boggs. Or something they like that. They both got these weird names like that. <laughs> well, it's, it's the combination of last names of, you know, they, yeah. there was somebody who founded it and then people join in, they become partners, you know, they, they merge, it becomes a conglomerate. But what is it that that, do you know, do you know what, what uh, one of their big missions is at that? Uh, I mean, it, it's a big firm, so they, they push for a lot of things. But you know what they push for? They control a lot of the contracting money for building the border wall on the southern border. 
right? Mm. So mm. the interesting question is, did he step away intentionally in order to manage border security while they while they sweep in this actress who's going to like walk around going the border, the border, the border, the border, right? And just and and just create a distraction from what's actually going on there, which is the managing of the contracts. These contracts are huge. These are multi billion dollar contracts, and a lot and for a lot of the time um, during uh, the last administration, there was like billions of dollars spent. But like it was just being wasted out in in the middle of the desert. Like they they were, uh, you know, they, they had the people contracted, so they couldn't undo the contracts. They bought materials. They had you know labor, but they weren't necessarily putting the wall together. And the question is, is that kind of like a, a sweetheart contract in a sense? But they kept coming back and asking for more money, and that that's what happens when you have a powerful lobbying group. And you know, so there is the question: Is this guy who could have been Speaker of the House? Is that level of power the kind of power that you want when you have an operation that is controlling how border security happens? And it may it may even be that it's beyond just like you know contracts that are gravy contracts. Maybe there is a DOD issue there, right? Maybe maybe that's a DOD operation for all we know. Uh, after all, it does seem like a lot of government contracts, even outside of things that we would call the DOD, are very often you know contractual arms of the DOD. So, um, oh, somebody says uh, Liam Madden was on Jimmy Dore. I think I, I think I saw that out of the corner of my eye one day, but didn't have enough time to like poke and check. Um, talk about liquid democracy. Um, so I, I don't know what liquid democracy means, but you know, I'll I'll drink. To, I'll I'll have some liquid democracy. <laughs> any, any, anybody out there know? It sounds like blood of tyrants wine. What can I say? <laughs> Liquid democracy. You know, um, do you mind if I share my screen? Because Doc Hammer brought up real clear politics and I, I, I pulled it up. Do it. Um, and and uh, maybe, Doc, you can uh, you can because, you know, running the earth is an educational venture primarily. And I love it. And people keep asking for solutions and just tools and ways they can be more uh, informed. So maybe you can walk us through how you use real clear politics. But I just I wanted to pull up these headlines here because I'm noticing something. So check this out. McGaskill, everything you're hearing about polls and or polls and Republicans winning, do not believe it. And just to uh, read what she has here. On MSNBC, Claire McGaskill spoke about her skepticism with polls. I want the Democrats to understand something. Everything you're hearing about the Republicans winning the polls and Republicans are going to win and we are losing in the polls. Do not believe it. I've been on both sides, so on and so forth. Um, so there's that. And then there's this guy, Michael Beschloss. Do you guys know who Michael Beschloss is? No. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you a fun little fact. So first of all... <laughs> So let's just read what he said. NBC historian Beshla says this country could be consumed by violence all over after midterm elections. Let's see. Okay, six nights from now, we could all be discussing violence all over this country. There are signs that may happen, may God forbid, that losers will be declared winners by fraudulent election officers or secretary of state candidates or governors or state legislatures. We could be six days away from losing our rule of law and losing a situation where we have elections that we can all rely on. You know, those are the foundation stones of democracy, so on and so forth. Now, first of all, doesn't this make him an election denier based on I, I just, I'm just saying. Well, I was going to say, I enjoy like this, the contradiction within like three sentences. Like we have elections we can rely on, but no one's going to trust them. 
Yeah. So it's interesting. <laughs> the narrative here is if we don't win, it was stolen. Oh, yeah. Isn't that like, okay. So, but here's the thing. So yeah, we can talk yeah. about that if you want, but I don't know if you guys remember when this, the, the raid on Mar-a-Lago happened a month and a half ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, that, I think at this point, God, yeah, I mean, on, uh, I, I'm not even sure that was this year, but no, go on. No, it was that. <laughs> I yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but so one of the uh, issues, like the story kept changing. Um, mm-hmm. And there's probably a reason you don't hear about it very much anymore. But at one point, yeah. the story was that he had nuclear documents that he shouldn't have that were kept illegally, nuclear codes. Um, I don't think any evidence was ever produced uh, for that. But at the time, Michael Beschloss, and if, if, if people want, I can, I can pull it up uh, mm-hmm. just to prove I'm not making it up. He basically implied that Trump should be executed for having those documents. So, you know, if, if I were president and I, and I, I wanted to take some power with me, I, that's definitely what I would keep is just some, you know, some digits and letters right. yeah. and numbers and, and whatever. I would just, you know, put it in my night table, you know, maybe every now and then pull it out and go, Oh my God, I have so much power and rub it against my chest and yeah. about it. I'd be like, all right, what, what do I do with these? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there, and you have a little, you know, staples, easy button right beside your bed to make you take the football with him. Well, this know. is the thing. The codes change as far as I know, Oh yeah, yeah. like daily perhaps. But uh, here's the thing. Well, see, here's I would take them like, like, like leave them on like your coffee table. That like when you have people over, you go, Oh, Oh, hold on a second. I better, oh, you weren't supposed to see those. Quick. You know how those things get around, you know, just that. <laughs> That subtle flex when you have guests over, you know. Or if they, if they pick you up the thing, and go, guys. you're under arrest. <laughs> I don't know. That's how you end those two long cocktail parties. <laughs> but here's the thing. You know how uh, us consp- you know how us conspiracy theorists like to draw connections and, and connect dots between every little thing and it, oh COVID connects everything, man. Well, check this out. The wife of Michael Beschloss is a woman named Afsana Beshloss. She's in our Campfire Wiki. That's campfire.wiki for anyone who wants to go check it out. And Afsana Beshloss is a member of the board for a certain group called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which I don't know if you guys know much about. It was founded by Bill Gates um, and is sort of uh, the biggest, I think it is the biggest vaccine-specific organization in the world. Yeah. And as far as I understand, they they basically control sort of the dissemination around the world of a lot of the COVID uh, vaccines that were developed. They help yeah. fund the COVAX platform, which by sent way, it all around. It's a very way, powerful organization. That, that name is Afsane. Afsane? Yeah, that's Persian. Afsana. Afsane. Afsane. Good to know. Afsane. So you so you have this power couple, and if you look, like her her she was well a global leader for tomorrow. No one's surprised. Um, World Bank, J.P. Morgan, Carlyle Group. She founded, uh, I believe, yeah, Rock Creek, which is an investment firm. She's been uh, a board member for PBS, American Red Cross, World Resources Institute, um, Doris Duke Charitable, Charitable Foundation, alongside none other than Anthony Fauci. Um, just a whole, a whole bunch. So I, and cancel infernal relations, like go on and, uh, and look at this page. If you guys want, I'll put the link. But the point is like, these are some serious power people we're talking. And it's funny how they keep showing up in the same positions. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it is interesting. And, and, uh, notice, um, 
so she's Iranian. And and I don't know if this is done like however the deck gets the deck gets stacked, right? One of two things is true. We either have a lot of people in positions of, of power, uh, pulling a lot of levers who are from nations that we're traditionally told. Now, I, I'm not saying we should view the Iranian people as enemies. In fact, I don't think we should view the people anywhere as enemies. But as, as far as like the governments go and the power struggles around the world go, it's interesting how many, how many people seem to be associated with the power going on in the United States who are from what we're told are our greatest rivals, if not from nations that are the axis of evil sometimes, right? I, I, I just want to throw that out there because it seems, you know, it, it seems suspiciously large, just like we were talking about the number of, of people from Ukraine. Um, and, 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 and I don't know, is there, is there some sort of sense by which if everything falls apart and backfires, we can blame those nations? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it, it is very nation specific, uh, like the history behind each nation and, and where they've been. Like the Russia of 40 years ago is not the Russia of today, for example. Um, they're just entirely different nations. I'm not overly familiar with Iran, but as far as I know, um, how do you pronounce her name? Afsana? Afsana. Afsana. Yeah, she was born in Iran in the 50s. And they emigrated to the States in the 80s. And we have to remember, you know, immigration policy discussions aside, uh, Canada and the U.S., Canada especially, but the U.S. as well. Like these are nations um, built in part on uh, successful immigrants. So I, I think we have to I, I, I don't think it's necessarily as much of a thing as you're suggesting, but there's probably well, I'm something not suggesting. There. I, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm bringing out the observation just to yeah. ask the question. Right. It, it's, it's something that at some point. You see enough and you begin to want to explore it right i mean um the number of uh, chinese nationals like who were arrested at universities you know in the last three years um that's not a small thing right no it's that's a good example there's big yeah. money big money going on there um yeah uh, so I, I just wanna, uh, there's a comment that came in i'm going to go ahead and, uh, and mention an answer real quick um by the way um i i'm pretty i, I spoke with john bodwin earlier today and i believe he now has a lot of the Vermont data. So what he's done with Massachusetts, he is, he is several hours in, or, you know, a couple days in like 10, 12 hours in to um, putting that together for Vermont, as I understand it. And I, I put him in touch with somebody from Texas who's, um, who's, you know, uh, in the process of trying to get uh, next level data for him there. So yeah, that project uh, is moving forward and it's one of the best, most hopeful projects that we have during the pandemic figuring out what's going on. So anyhow, oh, sorry, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think um, I think the China angle is a slightly different branch, but I'd say I think for in general, when you see a lot of that, I'd imagine if you looked at a lot of the top uh, you know, Ivy League universities in the United States, you'd see the percentage of foreign people in these universities pretty much one-to-one -one matches the percentage of people from those same foreign countries in the power structure 10 years later. Right. So it's sort of like, you know, these, it's not so much that it's like a, a nationally driven thing, I don't think, but more of a international managerial elite class thing that are networking at these universities and then, oh, yeah, well, this is my wife who I met at university and we got married and, oh, she happens to be from Iran. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's kind of why all of these things get um, funneled up. And I think as we've seen, I would guess I have no, absolutely no information on this, but 
I'd imagine if you looked at the data, you'd see like, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you start seeing upticks from those Iron Curtain countries of the number of students that are becoming, you know, foreign exchange students over here in the United States, either in, you know, finishing yeah. school and then you're uh, and in certainly I, I'm not necessarily encouraging, you know, um, uh, uh, anxiety, uh, what's the right word, paranoia over that. Um, I, have, <laughs> I have several um, fairly good Iranian friends myself, uh, even some going back to childhood. Um, people who move to the United States are most often people who are interested in freedom. But you know, I, I, I bring the point up just because the, the, the whole Ukrainian connection, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it seems to stand out quite a bit. And uh, in some stories, no matter who people are from, like some of these stories of people getting into our government or working with people who seem to be corrupt in our government, um, do seem to involve, um, you know, international players on a level that seems, you know, more than a little suspicious, but um, that may not be as nation specific. Well, well, Henry no, I, Kissinger is a good example, right? Uh, I, I, I believe he, he, I don't know when he came to the States, but he wasn't initially, uh, he was a, I believe a German uh, national. And then he wound up being one of the most influential or no, not German. Uh, let me hang on. Let me, that's an important one, but he wound up being one of the most influential people in American foreign policy in history, you know, um, opening up to China and all that. So there's certainly examples. Um, yeah, but Berzyzynski. Like Berzyzynski is a Polish, uh, Polish royalty, as I understand it, too. Yeah. Well, and I think you're right, too. I mean, it is important to note. It's, it's definitely not what you would expect to see if, you know, normally if you didn't have some sort of other grouping, other way of picking out, you know, your elites and your, you know, aristocracy of a nation, you would expect it to be almost entirely homegrown with a couple Kissingers and other folks kind of filtering yeah. in. But whereas you start seeing like, wow, it's like 20% seem to be from foreign countries or, you know, they're the wife who's foreign and the or a guy who's domestic, all these sorts of things. Yeah. You say, okay, well, the, you, at that point, I think you can pretty confidently say that the mixing process and the selection process isn't happening based on, well, these are Americans and they're doing American things. They have the status because they grew up here they have status from some other realm. I yeah. would guess that a lot of it ends up in the network and or, or the globalist crowd. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, and 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 I, I think that that's probably true more often than not. Um, I do think that there's also a lot of theater. Like um, I, I actually wondered to the extent that uh, China spying on the U.S. is actually the U.S. spying on the U.S. Right. That sounds strange, but um, <laughs> you know, given the way, given the way the West controlled China for so long, right? Um, you know, we think about the politics of China. Um, you have this tiny minority, the Manchu, who took over China in 1636. Well, that's shortly before, like, the British and the Dutch go over there and start running the trade, right? Did the British and the Dutch help keep the Manchu in power all the way up until, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of an unstable, you know, tripod of power, perhaps. Um, keep them in power up until the uh, opium wars were accomplished and China had been flattened. Right. And their silver taken, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of their uh, rising middle class turned into drug addicts, um, <laughs> you know, which seems to be going on in the U.S. right now. Uh, you know, we, we, we flattened China and then, you know, the last emperor, I guess, resigned as a six year old in, in what was it, 1912 or something. Uh, and then after that, we have the struggle between the nationalists and the communists that eventually gets settled by the U.S. State Department, who funds Mao over Chiang Kai-shek and, and acts like it was an accident. Right. Anyway, um, you know, when you look at that, when you look at that and you look at Wall Street funding uh, a wing of the Bolshevik Revolution, you wonder how much. 
puppeteering has been planned for a very long time, and it's very tough to disentangle. Uh, you know, there's there's so little transparency in the hierarchies, and you know, uh, who knows what the power struggle looks like? But plenty. You know, Ch China is a very large nation. You can have people who are in, in essentially working for the West, whether or not they know it. And you can have people who are working for China. Um, and, and we would have no real good way to tell them apart, but anybody would want to spy on the U.S. and take U.S. technology, including global corporations. So I, I just want to throw that out there just because I think the world is even less simple on that level than, than we talk about the, the political narratives that are, you know, sort of Republican narrative, Democratic narrative, or right, left, all this stuff. It, it, it so often misses a lot of the, the texture of the, the global landscape. Yeah. yeah. And on, on the immigration point in general, like it's boiled down to you're either pro-immigrant, which means you're not racist or you're, I don't know, anti-immigrant, which means you're racist. But that's that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard now that I've had, you know, I've actually faced and talked to people on both sides of the discussion. But I wanted to bring this up as an example. I'm sure it's the same in the States. I heard on the, the radio yesterday an, uh, a, a story saying that Canada had not only were they preparing for an additional wave of immigration, just broadly speaking, they had upped their intended intake, like they had upped their targets. And as you can see here, the Washington Post says it's because there's a labor gap. Well, why is there a labor gap, do you think? A bunch of reasons. 1.5 million Canadians aren't allowed to work without the vaccine. Boom. There you go. That's one example. And look, these things are complicated, but start with the obvious one, guys. So that, to me, makes me feel like this is, you know, kind of crap. And also, the other part about the, the, the story on the radio was they were talking about, well, we don't have enough houses for them all. Okay, but we also then, in the next story, we're talking about how Vancouver is the center, you know, it's one of the largest centers of the opioid crisis in North America. And how the homeless crisis keeps expanding out from that in our downtown east side is famous for this. So, OK, so we have a homelessness crisis as well. And then also the cost of living in general is going up in metropolitan, you know, metropolitan cities across North America. Chief among them, Vancouver. I believe this is the most expensive city to live in on the planet. I'm, I, that has changed from time to time. But I believe right now that is the case. So my point is, all of these things can't possibly coexist the way they're being talked about and then you have the weaponization of things like well you're either pro-immigration or you're racist when it feels like there's an ulterior political motive okay and, and and you know what you were just talking about right here um yeah you, you can't say i'm pro equilibrium people what <laughs> you know you can't have you can't have a thought that nuanced uh, um, but th this is part of the reason actually that i looked at at the aoc election and i wondered whether or not that was a planned election because let, let's think about what's gone in the U.S. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. controls the southern border, right? Um, the fact of the matter is uh, our government and both parties have had the opportunity to do this. Um, they control how open or closed that border is. Um, you know, to, to the degree that it's porous, that is a choice. That's a choice. There's no doubt about it. And people can talk all day long about, you know, funds being held up and, you know, you know no, no. Um, let's think about what's had, happened during the Biden administration, though. I actually, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. You know who, who really started building the wall? Um, and and you know, most people don't know this. Like, when did the wall start? People go, oh, Trump was building the wall. No, Trump <laughs> built less of the wall than any of the previous four administrations. Clinton was building the wall. 
then Bush was building the wall, W was building the wall, and then Obama was building the wall. They built most of the wall, that, those three presidents. And during that time, border crossings reduced, illegal border crossings reduced, I think, 96%. And somebody can fact check me on that. Uh, I'm not off by far if I'm off, right? I mean, that that's that's what happened. Then Trump comes into office. Uh, I think border crossings did go down. Uh, they, they may have like fluctuated, but but they, they weren't changed by all that much. But then Biden comes, I, maybe at the end, they, they, they were down. Biden comes into office and the number of border crossings quadrupled. Um, people don't know how much, like just what you were showing right there. Hey, we need workers to replace these people that we have pushed out, right? That looks like, that looks like a controlled plan. Yeah. And this is part of the reason why I feel like it, it's important to get the Democrats out of office. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a partisan. I don't care to be a partisan. That's never you know, part of what I'm going to be. This is part of the reason I think, you know, if the Democrats can control that lever and they can have people push out of jobs with job mandates and you can bring in immigrants to to replace those people in, in jobs as much as possible. You can't have that in a society. If a nation runs runs that way, you can have at any one point in time. One party can push a button that enables it to take control of the nation by you know incrementally taking away the, the funds, the money of the other side, and even creating a new voting population that, of course, is going to vote your way because you just, you know, you just threw other people out of jobs that you gave to them. And this is exactly why the conversation of, of immigration can't just be pro-anti-immigration. It has to be, you know, um, it has to be context and equilibrium and quality and kind, right? Um, that That's the only sane conversation you could ever have because, if you allow something like what what appears on paper, right? That's the way it looks on paper to me. I mean, am I am I wrong? Let me let me let me offer a slightly more nightmare scenario. It isn't a plan, and they're uh. just that bad at it because <laughs> it's entirely possible from a functional standpoint that none of this has to make coherent sense in the sense of like, well, we think of the nation as a single being that has goals and hierarchies and wants consistency. It's entirely possible that from a government leader control standpoint, it's just as good to have 50 problems that you solve individually in ways that make the other 49 worse than it is to try to solve them in a nice coherent way that flows especially in a very large country like the United States where everyone's going to have lots of problems. And yeah. you can then say you're going to solve different problems in each state, even though solving the problem of Arizona is going to piss off the people in California. So I this is that's true. And I think that there is some definite weird, like, wow, isn't that convenient features of how a lot of these problems line up and how their solutions cause them. But at the same time, I'd be willing to bet that about 90% of the time, it's just like, oh, did we make this worse? Okay, great. That'll be our next talking point next week for something we're going to fix. You better better elect us because we're the only ones that can fix it. The other guys Problem, reaction, solution. Yeah. yeah. And, exactly. So th this is a conversation that I've gone back and forth in terms of how much I believe is controlled and how much I believe is, is a confluence of events. Mm -hmm. Um. Like, the more I, the more I like talking about the AOC election and the fact that Crowley went to manage the wall and, and how the numbers of, of immigrants, um, you know, 
oddly match uh, the number of people being pushed out of jobs, stuff like that. There's so much about the pandemic that looks more planned to me than anything ever has before. Yeah. Uh, one thing, um, one one reason why I was skeptical of the pandemic in early 2020, or at least aspects of it, right? And, and I, I still haven't decided what I believe about certain aspects of it. Um, there's there's too much to learn, too much to study, to have a firm opinion about too many things. But uh, in 2019, there was a glut of CEO replacement. Right in, in Fortune 500 companies, you had the yep. biggest wave uh, exodus of top executive talent that you've ever had. Um, I actually moved twice that year. And part of the reason that I moved is because I was in business conversations. I would go into these meetings and, 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 and there was like creepy, weird hushes going on about like global events or like, you know, people would ask certain questions. I, I was at, actually, I, I was in uh, Chattanooga, which is um, the center of what's called the trucking triangle. It's where a lot of the logistics companies um, that run the, the U.S. trucking networks you know, trucking is a profession. It's like the number one profession in half of U.S. states. But there, there is an area of the country where you have more of it going on. So I'm in, I'm in a you know VC's office, and I was asked, you know, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? And they kept they kept doing this thing where they would talk about self driving trucks and go, "It's happening. It's going to happen." Right? It, it it really seemed like like a, like a programming sort of thing. Like everybody say it after me, right? Mm-hmm. And but you know they asked me at the table, what do you think is going to happen if, if all the truckers are replaced today? And I said, well, you're going to have a lot of truckers out on highways with rifles, <laughs> and and the entire room stops, right? It was like it, it was like because I thought for myself and said, you know, what what intuitively came to mind, uh, it, that that it, it it shocked the room. But you know, it, there were a number of moments like that that felt very artificial that I have never seen. In business conversation, usually business conversation, people are are as real as it gets. You know, they want to discuss realities. They want to like you, you get more reality in business. You just do. But um, I, I moved back to Texas after uh, a few weeks of dealing with people that, that seem to be uh, whispering and and asking questions and and being defensive about everything. You, they, they were like people would just like ask me out of the blue. You know. Uh, you know, which, which uh, media companies do I have, you know, do I have the most liability? Do you think I should get off of Gmail now? Now before what? What are you talking about? Can you explain the coded language to me? But that was going on all throughout 2019. So um, w- when I look at that, I think, and I, I think about Joe, Joe Crowley, and I think about, you know, what's going on at the border, the nozzle just being opened wide the moment Biden got into office, just boom. And you don't even have that many crossing the border unless, you know, they've been told it would happen too, right? Like, like somebody somebody had to even whip up the interest in crossing the border, I would think. Well, that was Biden. I, I think the the Biden administration basically on TV said, we're not going to so. enforce Maybe this so. set of okay. policies, so come on up. Maybe it's certain um, amount of news messaging. Now, people don't know this, but Mexico has 96% employment. It's actually, it's actually not a trivial thing to get somebody in Mexico to just up and move to the US unless they're already migrating for their job, right? It's it's a matter of like a, there being a little bit more to the migration each year, but um, they also know they have to be more educated for a lot of US jobs. But I also There's think it's- of, I was gonna say there is a lot of communication between US, you know, US Mexicans and, you know, back home and there's a huge right. back and forth. So it isn't even just like, oh, we heard something. It's, hey, my cousin told me, we know something real is happening here. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think the Biden part helped, but 
I mean, that was one thing we saw with the, um, the last couple of recessions is that it's almost, a, it's not quite a leading indicator, but it's really close that immigration follows recessions and you see, whoop, oh, there's a recession, immigration drops off a cliff and then it only starts sneaking back up whenever the uh, economy starts repairing. So uh, they have really good uh, Wall Street Journal uh, subscriptions or they're, you know, everybody's talking to each other real closely. And that's one of the things that the social sciences get studied quite a bit is how much they communicate to each other, what kind of information they pass back and forth. And Yeah, well, the other interesting thing is I don't think it's necessarily, I'm sure this stat exists somewhere, it's not necessarily Mexicans uh, crossing the border. I think it's a, it's a lot of... Um, other South American countries, mm-hmm. uh, Central America, yeah, pass through immigration. Yeah, exactly. And Central and, America and Venezuelans uh, more recently, but uh, Central America, we get a lot. Yeah. And, and also, though, from places like Ukraine and Afghanistan, um, oh. a lot of places that uh, are sort of shaking off, uh, e- even if you want to not read into it any more than, you know, people are fleeing. Um, a lot of I, Caribbeans, I, Caribbeans and Africans go to Mexico first uh, very often. Which is interesting because then you, conversely, you have the Canada-U.S. border, which is the longest contiguous land border. I think I used that word right. uh, Land border on the planet. And you know how hard it's been to try to get into the, like, I can't get into the States. I can't get in even if I tried. Like, it's insane. And and it's, I, I. You you guys would come here and start hockey fights. We got a regular, we have to police that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you don't understand. Did you watch what happened in Ottawa? Our well, version of a January sixth. Our version of a January sixth is hot tubs and barbecues and feeding the homeless. Um, it, it's pretty scary, you know. It's pretty scary. <laughs> but yeah, oh, yeah. So I don't know. I'm. I just want to clarify. I'm with you. Uh, I. I, I um. The, the, the honest truth is I, I've been liberal. Like I'm in Vancouver. Vancouver is the most liberal place uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. It's like the LA of Canada. Um, and I've voted, li- I helped Trudeau get into office. Well, that may be a bit, giving a bit of credit to myself. That's not due, I but I wouldn't keep. Yeah, I know. That's exactly right. He was not this crazy when I voted for him. I swear. Justin Castro. Justin yeah. Castro. <laughs> As, I look, we'll put a pin in that because there's more to that. Huh? For how long is that going to be funny? Is it funny because we know that that the only people who who for for that for whom that's not the default at this point <laughs> are the party loyalists? Does it feel that way? Is that crazy for me to say? I don't think it is. <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's achieved uh, it's achieved. What's the word? The the window. The uh, I almost said the ovarian window, but that's not the term at all. The, the Overton window. Overton. <laughs> yes, Castro has hit the ovarian window. On his <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to retitle Castro, this stream. Castro was famous for his um, interest in the ovarian window. <laughs> Hence, why there was a certain trip that a certain Trudeau family may have taken to Cuba at a certain time. Anyway, I'm not spreading baseless conspiracy theories here. <laughs> um, I'm spreading conspiracy theories with a base. Uh, let's, dare, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. This was one of the most interesting things that happened this uh, week out of many. Let's go back for a second. You had an article earlier 
that, that had the, these internal contradictions, like how people should view, you know, the election after the elections. Um, I, I think I think this is an interesting moment that we're going to see, and maybe we'll see it, maybe we won't in the numbers, right? I mean, we like, this is where people needed to have been talking to each other for the past several years, where, you know, people who began to put up walls or castigate you, you know, and, and, and there's some people that I finally broke ties with, but it was only after, you know, years of castigation. Um, but th this is why people need to talk to each other, because we don't know how many people who might have been amongst i'm going to call the the democratic mandarins not that all the mandarins are democrats right and if and if anybody wants to know what do i mean by the mandarin class your mandarin class is it, it's your your people who run society right uh, these aren't your oligarchs but these are the people who serve the oligarchs by by being the managerial class largely or the cognitive elite um most of those people have become Democrats over the past three decades, right? That's the way the, the party has been shuffled. And I think that that happens when you have controlled, and this is why I do believe they're, they're organized levers of control. I think that happened because of incentives. And I think it happened um, uh, at the university level um, with incentives there. Uh, and I think it happened at the corporate level even. And, and, and I was on Wall Street and I saw Wall Street Wall Street changed dramatically in the 80s and 90s. It was it was majority Republican, you know, two to one going back into go to the Reagan era, two to one. And uh, I would say that that it is now probably, you know, five, six, seven to one. But it, at the at the executive level, it's probably 10, 20 to one. Right. If, if you go and look up, you know, uh, the largest financial firms in the country, look at their top executives and look at who they give campaign contributions to. Sure, they give to some Republicans, almost always on the finance committees, mm. right? Otherwise, otherwise, Wall Street is just, it's a democratic entity and it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have industries that are entirely like party centric. But because of that, I think that we've had, uh, especially over the last 30, 40 years, we have developed into, you know, we have, we have brainwashing that goes on in the school factories, right? I mean, like, we don't have to argue over that here, right? Okay, so that happens. And then people graduate to becoming, you know, uh, educated um, specialists, right? And they know they're really good at what they do. They are technically good at what they do. Otherwise, they become skilled TV watchers. They know the bullshit in their pool, but they're, they, they suffer from, uh, you know, Gelman amnesia. They actually think that, that what's being projected to them and every other, everybody else's specialization, they take it for granted, like it's real, right? And so, you know, you, you have, um, you know, the skilled TV watchers who are educated enough, they go to the Atlantic, right? That's what the Atlantic is. It's TV for, for, the, for the cognitive elite skilled TV watchers or skilled magazine readers is what they are essentially. So, you know, th this is, this is what's happened. And, and I'm not even sure how to view this, right? Is this fully real or is this more theater? Is this, is this puppet, puppet theater? So, um, <laughs> uh, th this economist, Emily Oster, um, who, who's become a parenting expert. She, she created a blog where she talks about parenting. And I wonder if that's, if that's like really cognitive programming right there. Right? Why? Why would this economist spend this much time, um, you know, becoming the mom economist? Uh, that's what Eugipius called her, which is, <laughs> I, I think, one of the best new words I've ever seen. Um, why would she become the mom economist? Is she? Is she really? Is she wor working to steer society? Like, is that a directive of hers? Even, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I, but I, I, I can't answer that. this one actually. What do you think? 
I've been aware of her for a while. I mean, since maybe got the first time she was on Econ Talk, I think five years ago. Yeah. And I can tell you from experience that the academic econ profession, you find yourself in niche and you put down tech, you know, tent stakes as fast and hard as you can. And that's what you do. If you can get any sort of grip with anything, you just run that bad boy into the ground. And so, you know, I think some of her earliest work, if I recall, was around just, you know, hey, what do you do when you're a mom? What's the data on this? Do we actually have any studies? Which is all over the place, really. Um, I found that out when I became a parent. But uh, I, I think I, I think about 90% sure I bet, you know, seeing her job progression a little bit in the past and you know, kind of seeing where it leads now is that it worked um it worked to get some papers published in a field where that wasn't oversaturated and it kind of became popular and then she ran with it but then now she is where she is because she was the only one other one doing it and uh because there's that there's that real fine line especially with academic economics where it's like you want to be a popularizer because that's where the money is unless you're doing finance but you need to be able to find something that you can publish an actual academic journal in, which is usually damn near impossible unless you have a wall of uh, equations to throw into it first. Mm. Yeah, I buy that. She, she, I knowing very little about her, she does strike me as someone that if we sat down and talked to her, we would come out not necessarily thinking she's as controlled as she is. Uh, you know, there's some decent points being made in the chat about, for example. Uh, Lo uh, Dazel, I believe Oster is invested in her public identity as, quote, unapologetically data-driven and disappointed she let the carrot and stick limit her speech. The main point right. of the article is self-deception. And I do think we have more people than we know who didn't take that final step out into the screw everything. I don't care what you think about me anymore. You're crazy. And I'm not mm. saying she's that. I'm saying I think that exists. And I wonder if, if you know, I, I, I wonder if she is earnest, if flawed uh, on this argument, if, if terribly flawed. <laughs> well, right. Think, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think what we're seeing a lot in case with her and possibly like the Tyler Cowens and some others of the world is kind of what I was, I term like the respectability disease, where it's like you start out and you have no friends and you're just, you know, the lone voice shrieking into the wind on a live stream at you know 9 30 on youtube you can say all kinds of stuff because what the hell you know but once you start getting accepted into like the mainstream and you have like oh you got the you got tenure you're up for tenure at university you the atlantic starts publishing your articles you start you know getting a little bit of a following from all over the place suddenly you have a lot more to lose yeah and you kind of start migrating in and you don't notice it over time but you start compromising yourself to fit in, to get along, to go along. Yeah, it, it, it's like taking little bits of poison over time, drinking the Kool-Aid, exactly. but drinking the Kool-Aid one sip at a time, you know, hoping that you get some resistance or whatever. Um, you know, in, in truth, when people drank the Kool-Aid, they had to have a gun to their head, most of them, right? Um, but And and and, and, and I, I do think that that may be the way that it's happened. It's possible. Um, I also, it, it, here's, here's part of the problem, though. It, it's hard to distinguish the people who might be truly psychopathically evil and the people who took sips of the Kool-Aid until they were literally unable to communicate with anyone outside their bubble, right? It, yeah. Like you, you go through her tweet history and there are people explaining to her what's actually going on during the pandemic the whole way through, right? I mean, she really had to, she really had to put on serious blinders and, and ignore it all the way through. And there, and there are some aspects of the pandemic that like, I, I wonder, 
I wonder how anybody got it wrong, except that somebody decided, or you know, somebody created whatever the, the attention game is. The attention game is strong enough that that they they wind up not being able to look to look at you know uh, the surgisphere paper. Okay, that that was so. If anybody who was really keeping up, that looked like such a scam. But look at this. You know, the WHO trials are still being cited. Even even the Harvard Public School of Health that said, look, it, it's effective for pre, for a, a prophylaxis. They said hydroxychloroquine. You look at the studies. The summary of the evidence is statistically significant that it is effective as prophylaxis. Well, if it's effective as prophylaxis, it's probably because it's a freaking antiviral, right? Which means it should be effective for early treatment also. Uh, you know, to, to, to lose the logic of an antiviral should be used early to look at the WHO trials and not to not understand that they were sabotaged on every level. Like it, it's hard, it's hard to make the argument that they weren't right. They, they, they were given the medicine was given an average of like, you know, seven days median. I think in one of the studies, I think nine in the other, when viral replication occurs for eight days, right? You test an antiviral that way. It, they were given without um, azithromycin or doxycycline, without the antibiotic that would help with the pneumonia. The pneumonia kills half of all, half all the people who died from COVID died from pneumonia, right? It is a cocktail that we're looking at here. Give it all, right? Um, uh, and, and without, you know, vitamins when the majority of people, you know, who, who are dying have, uh, have, you know, vitamin deficiencies, Right. We, and we don't know how well all this vitamin uptake works, but, you know, when you can at least like give the vitamin C through IV, since they are working with people at hospitals, I understand that you want to break these pieces apart. But for the hydroxychloroquine in particular, if you're not giving it, trying to give it in the first three days or first five days at the, at the least, you're not really running a study. Right. And somebody who says evidence based parenting, somebody who says evidence based anything who can't think on that level about experimental design. And for two years later, to not get how much of a sham this was, like, so that's the thing. You're you're thinking about somebody who's imagining something like, this car has to work, and if you need to understand these pieces, you're either really bad at your job if you don't, or it doesn't. Whereas in the academic sense, the car doesn't have to work. You need to get people to agree that your car works. Right. And that's that's what the game is here is that, you know, if you want to be on the inside, you've got to have the people supporting you, which means you have to support them and you have to be spouting the same things they're saying. So I don't think it's right. This is why I'm no longer in academia. <laughs> right. I have the nasty habit of saying what I actually think. But <laughs> the trouble here is that in this system, we've gotten so far away from, hey, this is the trial. You've set up the study wrong. So clearly this trial information is going to give us good stuff. We should have done this differently. That doesn't matter. The trial says what they wanted to say. And so therefore it's the trial that matters. And all right thinking people are going to agree this is the trial that matters because it says what we wanted to say. And that really ends up being a problem. I mean, somebody, let me, let me see if I can I mean, it, But when I hear that, the more when I hear that, like, like I go back to high school, right? Mm -hmm. My high school crowd would do a better job with this conversation Oh yeah, than this PhD crowd, right? And 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 some of these even include like um, Alex Tabarrok. I had more faith in until you know right up to the pandemic. I, I you know probably ninety percent of the things that he wrote about I, I at least I mostly that I, that I at least mostly agreed with, right? 
Um, I thought he was the better pair in Marginal Revolution because I, I thought, you know, I thought Tyler Cohen had gone off uh, with a lot of topics off of deep ends years ago. But when he, when he just starts, you know, mix and match and, and you know, like, like, like slow down, right? Like they, they've never even verified uh, that, that sensitivity and specificity are the same for both arms of the trials, right? We, we don't even know, we, we don't even know why they threw out six times as many people in one arm than the other. Right, like, there's so many questions about this. That like just running straight yeah, yeah. toward mix and match, like it, it, it's it's hard to know how suspicious to be, right? Um, it but it, it it does get us to a point. Now it could be that these are people who have been caught up, who have been themselves hypnotized. I mean, I I really think that there is some sort of like a hypnosis, some sort of a directed brainwashing going on. Uh, the way that I heard business people, just the way that I got very suspicious of the business community in 2019, felt as if there was an awareness of a pressure being applied. Right? Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I was literally talking about a, a, a you know, a 60 million dollar finance deal where you know, somebody came back from talking with a Harvard a law professor that I was working with came back from talking with his friends at the top of J.P. Morgan and literally flipped his shit. <laughs> pardon my language. Um, and this is like May 2019. And I see all these things. And I think, I think there is some sort of directed brainwashing going or or let's face it. Let's face it before World War Two, Nazism was not just a German thing. In fact, it was probably invented in America. That's my personal opinion. Um, there were definitely American Nazis there. There was the woman who went over and married, you know, the king of England, and you know, which forced him out of the throne, right? Um, uh, so, th there are there have always been a portion of the elite, uh, the economically crowd in the U.S., who are completely bent on power. You know, they they don't even care. They're not even trying, right? Um, yeah, there are some people who think like the Astors, you know, that members of the family were murdered in order to to keep there from being a rivalry between sort of good guys and bad guys in the U S and, and I, I, I personally haven't looked enough of that to know what to think about it. Um, but I mean, that is often the way good and evil operates and competes, right? Uh, good wants to create a network that's healthy. Um, evil wants to suppress and destroy. I think that the answer is we can't actually say what's going on in Emily Oster's mind. Oh, that's yeah. my personal opinion, because I can think of people that I've known in my life who looked like her, who acted like her that I that I've come to the conclusion were either just totally mixed up and brainwashed or I came to the conclusion that that's a psychopath but I I just want to point out what her response was after you know so much criticism and a lot of it very very you know well laid out right I mean like we beat the crap out of her yeah but but let, let's 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 be real we we did it we did it with care in our chore and, and her response the next day on Twitter looks like, let them eat cake. I haven't seen this. Walk us through this. Um, well, this is this was the link to her next blog post, which is, what's the deal with vasectomies? And and by the way, this image is not even in the blog post. So it was an image, it was an image used as a pass-through. Oh. That, that doesn't even appear in the blog post. But I don't know. I mean, that that's just... Uh, it's it, it, a nod to depopulation. It's just a lot I know in one picture. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I really hope she had like a cue, and that just happened to be the next one. She's like, "Oh God, I got to publish something today." That'd and, be amazing. 
and and does does this does this connect to the elections and the way that people may or may not go out to vote, right? And is this part of the reason we're being sort of shaken up with messaging to make it as hard as possible to interpret results? You know, it, it, how much of that that thirty percent or thirty five percent of the absolute hardcore Democratic faithful is looking at stuff like this? Um, is looking at stuff like this right now, going, you know what? I need to reconsider everything that I thought that I believed about the messaging that comes at me from these elite of the elite, you know, the cognitive elite. Um, I, I'd be questioning it, you know. <laughs> see, I, I see this as a preemptive defensive strike in mm -hmm. the sense that they know in a week it could get real dicey because the first thing everyone's going to scream for if, you know, the Republicans start sweeping the House and Senate is to go investigate this find out who did what when there's gonna be a lot of pressure and sure but you know if, if you're if you're a democrat you know why why are you bothered by that why not say yeah we need you know um that got mera the guy who uh, was the lead author on surgesphere and the guy who ran surgesphere um mm -hmm. step and decide like why would democrats not go yeah investigate those two jerks because i think i think the thing is is that on the left, and this is all just speculation of what I've been gathering on this and what makes sense and, you know, sort of this, what would I do? But this seems to be the sort of situation where she's worried that people on the left might say, yeah, bring it. You know, we were right. We were seriously right. And people like her and more likely people that have been paying her probably a bit of money to keep pushing the COVID thing and, you know, here be a cheerleader for this. I bet you a lot of them know oh shit, it looks like there might be some stuff going on in the background that if this comes out, it's going to look really, really, really bad for us. We need to we need to all rally behind this one option and say, okay, look, a lot of crazy stuff happened. Let's not worry about that anymore. Let's agree to an amnesty now so that in six months, a year, they find that this was an intentional lab leak so that Pfizer could already have the vaccines ready and make a billion, whatever craziness pops out the other end, they're already covered from it ahead of time. Because when you look at it, like the way she writes it, she cites four mistakes, right? Cloth masks, closing beaches, having schools closed too long, and suggesting people in inject bleach. Which yeah. Like, really? That's your top four mistakes? Really? <laughs> Anything else sneak in the top five there that we should know about? Well, the, and I suppose that brings us to this is whether intentional or not, this is a, a limited hangout type thing. Like this so clearly misses the fundamental problems uh, and makes factual errors. Like, I, I, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is, and I, I did look at this, that whole bleach thing was tremendously misrepresented and perhaps even you could say fabricated. Like that was ridiculous. Oh. I was always just assuming that was a 4chan thing, like you know, hey, your iPhone 7 is waterproof. Ah. You, know, you can charge it by putting it <laughs> I thought my iPhone 7 is waterproof. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, you know what? Just while because you had I correct me if I'm wrong, there was a chat you were trying to bring up about science and nature. Am I right? Yeah, you got you nailed that one. Yeah, that was exactly it. That you know, don't cite anything unless it's in science and nature. And and as you guys were talking, I remembered that I had seen something and there's a bit of a rabbit hole I want to take people down. Just give me one sec. So let's pull up this page just just for for to point out, you know, how ridiculous a uh, an assertion that is. Let's see. Uh, OK, so. So nature is 
a publication of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. So the COVID coverage that was done by science was sponsored by two groups, the Pulitzer Center and the Heising Simons Foundation. That's a name. It's in red. means I haven't looked at it. I see it come up a lot. But the Pulitzer Center, I have looked at it. And the Pulitzer Center, who funds that? Well, there you go. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, Ford Foundation, Planned Parenthood, uh, Meta, you know, Facebook. Mm. The Nuclear Threat Initiative, who ran the monkeypox <laughs> scenario that happened last year, and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, um, the Schwab Charitable Fund. Yeah, the, you know, that's not Klaus, though. That's Charles. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but... No but relation, it, I mean, I'm sure they're quick to point out. <laughs> what's that? No relation. I'm sure they're quick to point out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I haven't actually seen them deny that. I don't think they even mind so much. I, um, I think they pat each other on the back quite a bit. And then you get look at that, the United Nations Foundation. Yeah. So, point is, if we're talking about trusting, oh yeah, you know, only trust, frankly, any source. If 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 we said, hey, only trust rounding the Earth, that would be the dumbest yes. assertion yeah. anyone could make about any institution. Is my point because we. Every single person and organization has biases. Some of them intentional, you know, they get bought. Others, it's, you know, uh, subconscious. And there's everything in between on that spectrum. So anyway, I just wanted to show a concrete example that I happen to have some familiarity with on why listening to any one sort oh, yeah. is sort of ridiculous. Yeah, well, and that's the crazy thing too. I mean, it's like, you know, in academia, like I mean, economics off the top of my head, there's at least 75 journals that are half decent. Yeah, most of them are like field specific and things like that. And maybe there's like a top three in your field and then you know, it's a little pair pyramid and stuff. But at the same time, it's like saying, oh, well, it's only a top 20 journal. So you can just throw that one out. Mm, maybe, but probably not anymore or less than it's in one of the top three. Those things get punted all the time. Yeah. I mean, good Lord. The, was it Chris over at Carlstack has made a career out of that, basically just finding all the bad economics and uh, finance uh, articles. It's like, you know, you can't be that picky about it and, you know, act as though there's absolutely no political maneuvering, both just, you know, within the profession politics and then bigger, you know, governmental politics questions about who gets published and what. And, yeah, you know, you know oh, you, you know, your, your paper disproves one of the editor's advisors for his thesis. You know, oh, nope, you're not getting published here. <laughs> yeah. How dare you improve our overall understanding of the topic we all care about? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, God, academic publishing is such a bloody pissing contest. It's, oh, it is hard. I honestly think it's hard for people to grasp just how horrible it is. I mean, and it's just the nastiest, like, playground sort of thing. Like, oh, you know, you you stole his girlfriend 30 years ago, and so now none of your grad students get to have a job or publish. And it's, yeah. okay, it's just how it is. And everybody goes, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Well, and I guess that's how you wind up with these weird seeming power systems where all you need is for one generation of people to not really mature and not really address those kind of social issues. And they bring them with them into their presidencies at various universities or editorial boards for various journals. And you wind up with children basically yeah. running. Well, yeah. And, and that's the thing. You can even have a system like that that's awful if there's no real money involved in it but once there's millions and millions of dollars into it and okay well you know a big part of once you become a uh, you know a professor you're running research a big part of your job is just keep writing all of those uh grant requests all these yep. grant funding things 
grant funding gets granted on basically, well, how popular is your research? That's going to determine how many people want to pay for it, as well as whether or not the government will. Does your research please the government? If you're going through NAH, if you're going through a National Science Foundation, I mean, there was a joke in the 2000s about you know, basically every single paper written on any subject had to have a section on consequences for climate change. Oh, yeah. And it was just, oh, yeah. You know, you, you just build it out. Doesn't matter. You put in a few sentences because otherwise you're not going to get funded. And people know that. Like, you know, you were bringing up like the, you know, the Gelman uh, amnesia thing. It's like people know this, but then they say, no, it's totally legit when you're talking about healthcare. Like yeah, and no money that gets funneled anywhere through healthcare, science, and studies and academia. It's and just- and you just you 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 brought to the fray here. I want to tell people something they might not know because you're talking about the ways in which uh, research uh, can be controlled through the funding mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And I want to um, invite people to learn that that's how I think not just science was controlled, but the arts, because I went and I've, I've only recently, so I'm a musician. That's primarily what I do. I'm an artist. So, um, and I thus far have uh, benefited from virtually no grant funding at all. Just a couple of local things that were more like awards and that's been great, but I've been thinking about, okay, well, what if there is an opportunity to get a bigger project funded? So I went in in the last couple of months and looked at our federal grants up here in Canada. And, you know, there's this funny thing. And this also applies to uh, journalism. The, the, the same language was used in the grant description because we're in a global pandemic. Right. And we can't possibly have anyone, you know, violating public health measures. So they make you agree. I will not violate the public health restrictions in my jurisdiction or they don't even get very specific. But what you have is a grant that could be revoked at any time if you are, I don't know, questioning whether everyone should be wearing masks just as a default. Boom. You're not making that album anymore. And furthermore, you owe us 40 grand. (laughs) I know people who are worried about contracts that they had, you know, um, you know, very like like career level contracts that have clauses in them. Like, you know, if you you know. These kind, of, these kind of clauses and contracts are normally things like, you know, you don't want to get arrested for doing something really awful, right? Uh, or, or you can have your contract taken away. But, but there are clauses and contracts that are like morality clauses that are vague. And I think that a lot of people were actually very worried. I, I mean, I, I you know, talked to a couple, right? But if I talked to two over the last two and a half years, I'm sure that there are, you know, many more than I know who didn't talk about them with me. And there are probably, you know, maybe hundreds of them, maybe millions of people in North America who, who didn't say what they believed um, or, or didn't push back against things uh, early enough before it just became a steamroller because they were worried about their careers uh, on that level, even before mandates started, right? Even before we got into the vaccine era. Um, I, I think that's part of what happened. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to take a moment. I'm going I'm to see if we can shift this conversation back a little bit. Yes. Uh, I, I, I just looked up uh, 538. I actually haven't paid much attention to 538. Um you know, they have a certain amount of value, but, you know, it's certainly, uh, especially after a 2016 election, uh, it, it's certainly mm-hmm. worth questioning any kind of statistics or polling group or whatever, uh, say what you will about it, but but you can at least look and see, you know, what what's really going on. Uh, what, what do they say are the odds um, of the Republicans uh, taking the House or the Senate? Um, have you guys looked at this lately? No, I haven't. I don't actually usually check 538 come to think of it. Well, let's see if we can find it. Look at this. Uh, Biden, 44, 55, uh, plus 11 disapproval. 
I'm surprised it's not worse than that. But it feels like that the polls always sort of favored the Democrats a little bit. That that's that's just sort of my observation over the years. Um, but let's see. Uh, da, 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 do we see it yet? Uh, these are specific races, but do we see an overall? Well, look, Doc, you you mentioned you mentioned real clear politics. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I feel like you could probably point us to uh, the answer Matthew's looking for on a platform you're familiar with. Maybe <laughs> I'm not I'm not the sort of person to uh, you know live on this sort of thing. But uh, I don't know. Do you want me to share here, or maybe I can figure that one out? Matthew, what do you say? Do we want to give Doc a, a chance to show us something? Sure. Let's see if I can. And then, and then, I just want to give. I've, I'm going to go in ten minutes. Is that okay with you guys? Of course. Okay. Whatever. Beautiful. Oh, that's awesome! I get screening. We can have a whole second screen. Awesome. You need to see the weird mango reading in the background. <laughs> uh, yeah. So up here, they have their little polls and maps and stuff section. One of the things I like about Real Clear Politics, I've been kind of reading them off and on as I care for years. And they tend, they don't really produce their own stuff so much. They tend to just agglomerate everything. And so you'll be you know, like in their article section, you'll see stuff like, you know, Hey, here's this crazy left-wing guy. And the next mm-hmm. one will be like Victor David Hansen writing on the same subject. Like, oh, okay. That's kind of cool. So you can kind of pick and choose and go through. But um, this at the moment is there a house map where, uh, let's see. So I care about Pennsylvania and Fortunately, uh, I'm going to have to vote early and often since I live down this way. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, for the house, like this guy I was saying before, you know, it's like, all right, the Philly area is always going to be blue as hell because, you know, if not, they'll just drop off on their box of ballots. Pittsburgh always has a little core that's blue. And then Harrisburg, which is largely out of it this time, uh, tends to be pretty blue inside the city. But looking at the uh, Senate projection, they are pretty solid on uh, Oz, up by, sorry, I'm scrolling here, but you guys might be able to see. Yep. They have them up by, you know, 0.3, which is a big swing from earlier, where, um, sorry, I, I, Frankenstein is anything I can... Uncle <laughs> Festerman, I believe is called. Yeah. yeah, you know, Frankenstein's been up the entire time, you know, even a little bit after that, and so... You know, basically, they don't they don't give the percentages in the terms of like the probabilities, but they do give for each of the states where they see it going. Like, a, you know, Nevada walks through and say, oh, "Okay, you can see it, solid Democrat." And then, right around fourteenth, switches over to solid Republican. Yeah, Nevada is an interesting state too because um, uh, it, it appears that there's been an intentional strategy. I've heard a lot of people talk about this of people in California buying property mm-hmm. in Nevada. Because it doesn't matter how they vote in California, but if they can establish residency in Nevada, even if they even if they do live in California most of the time, um, that allows them to cast a vote in a place where it matters. Um, yeah. My understanding is, uh, you know, feet on the ground, uh, Nevada is more of a Republican state. Oh, God. I love this picture. I just getting getting back to your earlier point of like, are people throwing elections? Every time I freaking see Fetterman, I just think like, how is nobody from the party apparatus just placed a caring, gentle hand on his shoulder and said, no, John, <laughs> no, it's over, man. Call it a day. Yeah. Know, it, it just, and, and it's funny, it, it's sad. I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, 
no matter who I want to win, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of either of these guys uh, personally, but um, you know, yeah. uh, you know, regardless of, of who, who you'd want to win, it's, it's sad that someone would have a stroke and, yep. and, you yeah. know, and be, and be in a, a mental state that that's going to be difficult uh, from which to project leadership. Uh, again, you know, I don't know how much leadership matters in this environment. I don't know how much, um, you know, a, a person, uh, uh, I, I don't know how controlled the, the, the bills are and the messaging is and, and all that, but one way or another, uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's, it's difficult to watch. Um, so well, it, it looks like the, it mm -hmm. looks like Republicans are winning most of the seats that would be, you know, up for granted. It's interesting to see even, um, like when we look at, uh, the house, mm -hmm. um, you know, what are some states that, that felt like after the last election were democratic that are suddenly in play? Look at Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, I'm real curious to see how Minnesota goes. <clears throat> I mean, that's where I was living in 2020. Well, up until the middle of 2020, whenever we left, we came back to Pennsylvania. But I had a lot of students and a lot of neighbors who were just like, well, literally one of my students uh, told me she's like, you know, I've been a this was an MBA class and she was, she was in her 40s again. I've been a lifelong pacifist for decades. She's like. This week, I registered for a gun license because, yeah, you know, she's like, I had to sit in front of my dad's apartment in Minneapolis with a baseball bat across my knees, hoping people weren't going to come over and try to set it on fire. Yeah, she's like, and they were burning the block, you know, a hundred yards down. You know, I think, I, I think that sort of thing has a very strong impact on people in Minnesota. They're a weird democratic state. I found where it was like. They seem to be pro-government because their local governments actually worked pretty well. Like you paid taxes, but you actually got a lot out of it. And so you can kind of see why that would work. But, you know, I'm just comparing that to like, uh, you know, Washington and, you know, Oregon, where it's like, has Portland even stopped having riots yet? Anybody kept track of that? <laughs> just I, I, thought, I didn't long. know Portland was still standing. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this isn't the election map. This is just the smoke cloud that's emanating from Portland on the map. <laughs> oh, no. That's why it was so smoky here for so long. <laughs> uh. But even that, I mean, they're they're saying it's apparently a bit of a toss-up for a Oregon 4. That's well, Someone earlier in the chat was saying they found it hilarious that Biden had to come out oh, to right. Oregon. That means it's in play. Yeah. Yeah, you know, going, back to, going back to the possibility that there is some sort of undercurrent, some sort of coalition. It, let's say that there is, is an organized group of people and they were able to push out CEOs in 2019 or reorganize um, to consolidate power, some sort of consolidation of power. Does it matter to them who controls government or would they have a plan of possibly sloshing around public opinion and, and they don't care whether it settles on the Democrats for a little while or it settles on the Republicans, or maybe they mean for it to settle on the Republicans. Maybe it's going to look like the Republicans are not as controlled for a while. But really, how many of the Republicans really stepped forward and said, we need to put the brakes on pandemic policy? Not that many. Even people, um, even, you know, a lot of people go, well, DeSantis, DeSantis. Well, you know, look at what happened in Florida. There wasn't much difference between Florida and a lot of the other policies. And some of the things that seem to have been projected about what Florida was actually saying wasn't what was going on necessarily at the hospitals. You know, they they were a uh, let, let's give everybody remdesivir at the hospital state too, right? Um, they they have one of the higher excess death levels, and that may be 
you know, because they didn't control their hospital policy. So, um, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know who I trust and who I don't. A lot of people have said of uh, Senator Johnson, for instance, this is a guy who's tight with the DOD. So if if this is a pandemic that is <clears throat> you know, controlled or orchestrated by the DOD, or if the DOD is trying to create chaos so that there is some sort of world war that is under their control, then, uh, then Senator Johnson could just be sort of an actor in the middle of things. And I'll mention this, um, you know, after I, I spent uh, hundreds of hours doing work on the defense um, military database, found that neither side of the argument was correct, tried to correct it, and his, um, his, his two staffers that I had a meeting with basically were like, yeah, we don't care. That was, that was my takeaway from the meeting. I mean, they listened, they saw my presentation, they were like, um, and, and they, they reflected back to me something that felt like just very wrong. I was like, wait, no, these numbers are not correct. <laughs> and, and they're like, okay, and bye. You know, and, and nobody from there ever contacted me again. And the the numbers that that Rents had put forth during this, the Johnson hearing were the numbers that continued to get blasted out for months thereafter. Um, you know that you know DoD may be wrong about their story, but the the Rent story was just wrong. So <clears throat> I, I've, I've I I look around and, and I don't see a lot of trustworthy Republican leadership. Um, yeah. You know, like I said, I'm still rooting for the Republicans to to take away full control of the federal government for the Democrats. But is what we're going to end up with in 2024, full control by the Republicans? And are we going to find out then that they that they just have their own level of control? And I think that we should be asking that question. We should be, um, you know, thinking about it and thinking about, you know, how, how we can just, you know, deconstruct the, the partisan system and how, and how it is that you play game theoretically against the ability to buy either or both parties. Yeah, what, well, what I, I, I think the solution is, you know, you talk about local governments that are effective. I think that's the solution, whether it's specifically local government or just more broadly bringing things back down to your day to day um, ability to make decisions. Um, I know this. We just had our general elections uh, here across the province of British Columbia. And that was a big question is like, like, what, what's the point when all of these candidates kind of suck? And, you know, we got the best option here for mayor in uh, in West Vancouver, where I live. But what it showed me was, OK, like the, the, the premise of having someone represent you in office in theory is good. But if it's not actually being executed, uh, it, it truly does then go back to your own individual decision making. And that's so much easier said than done. But I think if we're aiming in a direction, certainly I think most people would agree that the the folks up top need to have less of the power that they currently have. And we need to then take back ownership of our own decision-making and responsibility for our own well-being, which again is so much easier said than done. And th this has been a part of uh, my frustration for many years, uh, talking with friends who were progressives, um, who, who really just, they, they really would never, almost never listen to any argument. Hey, power is too centralized. If you run government this way, you will have invisible hierarchies. You do have a giant honeypot. And this is the, the this is the largest honeypot that's ever existed on the face of the earth. You know, even, even like strange out there arguments like the one that J.J. Cooey brought to us a, a couple of months ago when he said, look, you know, if, if we're at the point of population crest, 
then this is the moment where there is the most genetic data out there to collect for humanity ever. And that could be one of the profit motivations of the corporations taking all the swabs, you know, um, having people come in for various tests, doing everything differently. You know, the, the way that they were managing things made no sense. So imagining that they might want genetic data for profit might make sense, right? So <clears throat> profit or control or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, the, there, there are so many large interests. You know, we have to, I think, personally, I don't think it matters so much how we vote. Well, yeah, it kind of does. Like I said, I don't want one party to control the, you know, all the federal government at the moment right now. We can at least put the brakes on things a little bit. But at least we can bribe both parties. <laughs> right. Make it. Yeah, and, 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 and it sounds funny, right? But uh, the, the way to fight invisible hierarchies is to make their game more expensive. Mm. Right? If you can bankrupt them, right? Guerrilla warfare on the economic level is the way we should think. And that's why we should be forming um, you know, economic networks of our own. We should be rebuilding businesses, rebuilding parallel society to the degree that is possible. And, and force them, any step that they take to try to harm that, um, make it cost them as much as possible. Don't don't give them these levers of power. I completely agree. What else do we say other than the end of day's profit points out, J.J. Cooley went out like a soldier, lost his job, home just crazy. And that is an example of, like I said, easier said than done. This is a tough situation we're in. <laughs> And uh, Jay's a good example of someone who saw what needed to be done and, and did it um, and continues to do it every single day. And what is it that he did? He spoke. Yeah. And I, I, I will mention this for people watching. Um, I, I know JJ very well at this point. Um, and uh, he fortunately, he's not that bad off economically. Um, he, 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 he skated by with people donating to his live stream for a while, but now he's, uh, he's doing writing projects and, and doing other work uh, that has replaced his income. As far as I understand it, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if it's 100% replacement or it may be a little bit more. Um, Fortunately, you know, if, if you, if you do good work, ultimately you can eventually build a parallel economy. And I hope that that is what we're seeing. I hope that, that part of the selection of people confused about what to do, you know, I hope a lot of people go back to the drawing board. Uh, it, I, 160 years ago, you go back to the Civil War, right before the Civil War, 70% of American households ran a business. Can you imagine that? Right? I don't know what it is today. I think I've seen numbers like 17% or something like that. But American entre entrepreneurship was the decentralized strength of America. And that has to be extinguished in order to have centralized control. But uh, it's it's one of the things that could be used to undo the direction that we've that we've gone. Where in sixty years we've gone from a relatively flat society to one that um, where you know, even the parties are represented by dis disproportionate economic control. So you're saying we want a flat society and a round Earth. And, 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 and I don't mean I don't mean flat society. I mean flat society in terms of. Um, you know, basic human dignity and rights uh, and economic opportunity, there will always be hierarchies, right? You can't, and, and there's no good reason to extinguish hierarchies. They are part of 
the, uh, the motivational process, the incentive process, the evolutionary process. You don't want to get rid of those things. What you want to get rid of is invisible hierarchies that cannot be checked, that cannot, you, you cannot game theoretically play against them, right? Um, where they move forward by not evolving, right? That's, that's what you want to put the brakes on. And you want to put the brakes on people who will profit by war. And you can't have that if you allow too much power to pool and invisible hierarchies. So, you know, um, something has to happen. We have to dismantle the deep state at some point. Yeah. I think another way of looking at that is that you want to, you know, the two kinds of hierarchies. One is the dominance hierarchy, which is, you know, I've got the men with the guns, the swords, whatever, and we're just going to make you do what we want you to say versus, you know, the prestige hierarchy where people want to follow you and do what you say voluntarily because they, oh, you're good at this. I want you to be my boss or, you know, I'm going to come work for you or, you know, I'm going to listen to your podcast and I'm going to, you know, take notes and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to start thinking along the lines of this guy, you know. And I think what we've really seen in the past, you know, God, maybe, maybe back 100 years in the United States, but at least the past 40 or 50 has been a big spike in the dominance hierarchy in the sense that, you know, we should be able to make people do what we want for their own good, for the good of society. And now we're up the name. and we don't know how to get out. Right. We, we in, in American conversation, we had a year of conversation about bend the knee, literally. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's funny. The other day I was reading a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. And it's, it's funny just how when Mark Twain writes that baseline assumption of, Oh, holy crap, man. Americans would have shot you six times by now. What are you talking about that? We're going to, you know, kneel to a King or do what this Lord says, because he says it, you know, just because he thinks it's a good idea. You know, it's just like, Man, this could be written about today. He wouldn't even have to time travel. Just forward. <laughs> <a little bit. laughs> I, I loved. I loved that book. I, I haven't read it so probably since I was like twelve. But um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad to hear that adults pick back up Mark Twain. Uh, I, I have one of his books um, in the bathroom. I'll admit that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's good, I and mean, that's the thing. You know, it's very valuable to read old literature like that just to see like what their assumptions about how humans act. You know, and like the idea that if you passed anything that was annoying or inconvenient or frustrating to Americans, we'd be reaching back for our rifles, you know, and be out in the uh, town square that afternoon. Yeah, and he was prophetic. He might have lost writing. something in the intervening years. <laughs> he was he was prophetic in his writing too. I I, I think he saw um, the direction that things were heading because of politics, and, yeah. and he ran into that politics. He he tried to uh, take his royalties from writing and turn them into technological investments. And he wound up getting scammed a couple of times and, mm -hmm. um, and you know, dealing with some people who were unsavory and learning what politics looked like up close. And, and he, he, I mean, he already knew human nature pretty well, but he even saw like next level, you know, type of problems with it. And, and I think that continued to, to, you know, be infused into his writing. I think that's actually, you know, a few years ago, um, there were schools that took some of his books off the shelves or took them off reading lists. Wow. Yeah, do you guys remember this? Mm -hmm. Because uh, because the N word is used. Is it Tom Sawyer? Oh. It, 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 Tom Sawyer, Pen, or what, you know, one of the um, yeah. one or both of those, right? Um, <clears throat> and and it's like, I mean, this is one of those Voldemort things, right? Like you know, fearing the name as opposed to you know the meaning behind it, um, but. I, I think I think that pushing somebody like him, he was one of our f great philosophical writers, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and he specifically spoke to children when he was in 
invited to do things like um, <clears throat> give talks at schools. He would go make the kids like the, the kids would just be like rolling out of their chairs because he would go up there and make fun of their their school administrators and school boards and <laughs> and all the things that the kids knew and they needed to hear another adult say it. Yeah. Right. And, and he yeah. so he would just lampoon them. Um, and, and but yeah, that if you're going to run a society that gets back to sanity, you can't have books like his on the shelf. <laughs> Uh, well, you guys mentioned bathroom uh, books and Law Dissolve says bathroom research is invaluable, which is quite a coincidence because I do most of the work on the wiki uh, in the bathroom. <laughs> um, that's a fun fact that my girlfriend knows all too much about because I'm in there too long. Anyway, um, uh, I, now I'm not saying you guys have to wrap up. I have to go make dinner, but I wanted to share a couple things before I go. I want to give um, some credit uh, the only we're talking about polling and unreliable polling. Well, this gentleman, Richard Barris, from what I can tell, is one of the good pollers. And he has Robert Barnes on uh, in the run up to major elections uh, for a series called What are the Odds? And I believe they've just done their final one. So I recommend you go check those out. And I will add a uh, link to the description. Also, huge shout out to the Viva Barnes Law community, who um, very kindly allowed me to post uh uh, note that we were going to be doing this and i saw in the comments that a couple folks did jump over and uh robert barnes himself did give us a like which is cool i uh, appreciate the engagement oh, nice. they, they let you do that like you communicated with them well the idea is it's and we're so here's this does lead me into the last point which is we're experimenting with locals right now the whole premise is to build a community and what I found so far in communities like Viva Barnes Law and another one, uh, the Duran is a good example. Um, a couple of Greek gentlemen who do a lot of good geopolitics discussion. The whole point is, you know, you're not following some uh, prophet or a leader. You know, in a sense, what you want to do is foster a community of people who hold discussions. Right. And I know, Matthew, that's what you and I have talked about wanting to do specifically with locals. So that's what I got to do in this context. I got to say, hey, I know this crowd, you know, the Viva Barnes Law crowd is into th this exact set of topics. Uh, and if anyone's interested in coming and contributing to the conversation, then you're welcome to. Um, so yeah, the answer is yes. That's and, the kind and, of thing that happens. I'm going to say this real quick, just because, um, you know, more than a year after I started operation uplift, like I, I would get, when I started my Substack, eventually I just started getting floods of email from people. Right. And people wanted to know, what can I do? Yeah. And suddenly, suddenly I'm being looked to like a leader and I, and, and I, I want to say this, like th there's a degree to which I'm, I'm happy and want to show leadership in life. Right. At the same time, um, what you want is for people to feel like they can take steps on their own. And I'm going to point this out for people who don't know, you know, I, I raised this, uh, this community, uh, operation uplift and operation uplift is who runs the campfire wiki. There's over hundred people involved, but you know, may, maybe like 30, you know, who are sort of active core members. Um, and, and over time, like I, I didn't necessarily have to direct people. People began to write their own sub stacks. And people began to create their own memes and produce their own like alternative music videos. Like uh, Tonica, who's who's Visceral Adventure, uh, has like three of these videos. And one one of the three is actually a number of the ladies in in Operation Uplift. So they 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 all deserve a lot of credit. Um, I I didn't know who was involved at first, but she had already done one. So you know, um, I, and she she's got a channel now where she's got them all. Some of you may have heard um, they silenced science. 
Uh, yeah, the sounds of silenced science. The, oh, sorry. So it sounds of silent science. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, she, she, it, it just, the energy just welled up to where she started doing her own projects, which is, which is what I want from a community, right? I don't want to have to say you do this and you do this. Um, so, you know, people coming to locals, like I hope that people will come to the locals community and get involved if, if that's where we go. There, there's a debate at the moment because Substack just created its own chat groups. And I need to figure yes. out what this is and what it means. Right. Yeah. Um, aside from that, um, you know, what what I want is for a community to come over. And some of those people may want to start participating in the wiki. There's a lot of documentation of what just happened in the last three years that needs to take place for a number of reasons, some of which may be for court cases, for instance, right? So we need people helping, you know, I, I 1% of my notes is in the wiki now. That's it. it it's a lot of work. Um, so, you know, we, we have hundreds of pages of notes that people can participate in putting or people who have a, a, an expert interest of their own can do that. But we want those people to sort of like move into the community, be selected, you know, say, hey, I want to be an Operation Uplift. And then we give them wiki credentials because we're not going to open up this wiki to everybody because it would immediately be sabotaged, right? When, when, you've, when you've got just, you know, thousands of hours of work, you know, that's gone into something over a year, um, you can't. Uh, the whole point of this is that the wiki universe um, was more and more corrupted. You know, um, I, I call this Matthew's Law. I've actually been saying it for like almost 20 years now. But the more political the topic, the less... Um, the less trustworthy is Wikipedia. You know, they specifically created this, you know, must come from a you know, major source or trustworthy source where they, where they drew that line. And what that line is, is exactly what sources you would need to corrupt in order to change history. Right. And we know that, you know, I mean, you know, who, who's not an idiot? Who doesn't think that's the way things work? Uh, the only reason you would even say that's, the, you know, that's not the way things work is you're either you're either self-reinforcing drinking the Kool-Aid or you're just not that bright. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, <clears throat> there will probably be a thousand wikis. I talked with uh, Mark Kulach. I, I don't know if I'm saying his Kulach. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. I apologize if I have his last name wrong. Uh, who does Who Satanic Live or How Satanic Live? Uh, do either of you guys watch? He, he's a really smart guy. He does a lot of great research. Um, and, and sorry, Mark, if I, if I don't know how to say your name yet. Um, I met him at, at CHD. Uh, uh, he has his own wiki and he has wiki, like he, he collects wikis, right? Because it's become a thing where people know, you know, you have to document. You have to document in order to get history right, in order to preserve, you know, the truth about what's going on. And, uh, you know, WikiLeaks, uh, in a sense, they're, they're, they were their own. They were, they were sort of a first. Um, <clears throat> but we have to do it everywhere. It has to be decentralized. So if people want to join us in our community locals, there will be projects offered. Or you can have your own, right? I don't want to direct people. I just want community to happen and take place. So that's part of the reason we're setting up at Locals. Um, wasn't going to talk about that today. I was, I, I was actually working on an article, but I... I, I still I need to check out and see how good the technology is with the Substack chat room. But it, is it just on the phone? Do you know? Has it, have either of you tried? It seems just be on the phone. Yeah. Is I it? Want to get to go on the uh, desktop yet? That's it's not, not going to replace locals. It's going to be a benefit for Substack use, but I don't think it's going to be the. It's not the same thing as locals, in my opinion. Yeah. But I think these can all be used as a you know a collection of platforms that that. Uh, bolster each other. I think they all have their uses. 
And, and I have um, I have an article. Actually, you know, I'll, I'll drop it. I'll drop it as, as into locals. I created a, uh, a code where, where 25,000 people can become, you know, like insider. You, you can pay. You can do free or you can do paid. Right. It's just like a lot of things. Um, the people who pay can get some some insider content. And I do plan. I'm going to have I have all kinds of presentations on the way right now where I have you know, anywhere from a dozen to several dozen slides about topics like iatrogenocide, you know, the withholding of medicine and the withholding of medical care, or, um, you know, the, the vacation of staff from nursing homes, just leaving people to rot <clears throat> during the pandemic, and, and, and a lot of other topics, some economic topics. Um, but, you know, I, I'm in the process of formulating these so that I can give presentations on them so that I can tell a cohesive, a coherent story. And uh, I'll, I'll probably like have videos where we'll try, we'll try them out. And Liam and I are talking about, you know, getting together every Wednesday night and discussing, you know, whatever is the most interesting thing to discuss at the time. And we, you know, we, we may have other things as well. So there may be some some content that we make that we never release live. And, and I'll go ahead and I'll and, you know, I'm going to go ahead and talk about this now. Uh, I'm involved in uh, some investigative work. Um, you know, th there's no way in the world you can have something like a medical freedom movement in a moment like this and not have uh, agents infiltrating it. And I have been working with a number of people. I, I sat down with uh, Robert and Jill Malone for two hours at CHD and other people and had conversations about people who had gone into uh, uh, communities and either controlled them or caused so much chaos that they broke up. And I'm going to be telling a lot of stories there, naming names and talking about some uh, some things that are, that are just too potentially horrific. Um, it, you know, uh, some of it's speculative, but there's a lot of dots that seem to line up about uh, some of these people being involved in some very nefarious activities. But uh, a lot of people don't know this. The U.S. trucker convoy was largely sabotaged. Uh, I've, I've spoken with some of the leadership from from that. Uh, there were people who were who kind of forced their way in and then would do things like talk to some of the truckers and send them to the wrong locations. Right. You've got these you know different groups of truckers and they're going to converge in some place. And then, you know, somebody gets in uh, by Liam. <laughs> somebody somebody. Uh, OK, I'll uh, interrupt and say bye. Thank you so much, guys. This has been awesome. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you again very soon. Yeah, talk to you soon. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll be talking about details that are non-public and doing it there sometimes. I do want to take as much public as possible, but there's also, you know, when you do that, you want to make a story tight, mm -hmm. right? And I have literally dozens of pages of notes and I have, you know, people connected from, from around a map um, who it, it, there's some interesting stories to tell and some interesting stories to share. And we're going to have to, to we, we want a community to to feedback with. So that's going to be part of um, what what the locals you know move is about. And, you know, I'll still be publishing the Substack like I ordinarily do. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and I can just add on that, too. I think the the notion that people have to get together with locals, either figuratively online or literally with locals, you know, with friends, family, um, not only is it really important for that, for getting kind of that sense of what is going on, where are we, what's happening, how should we feel about what's going on right now, but I think it's really important that people focus a bit on where do we want to be. I think there's, there's a, it's very easy and it's very emotionally satisfying, especially you know, when all this absolutely insane stuff has been going on for the past years, is just go, okay, anything but this. 
this has just got to go, whatever else is fine. And then not notice that either through voting or whatever has been going on, you end up getting a lot of the same, just a little bit quieter and wearing a different skin face over the uh, FEMA, right? I think it's real important to kind of say, where do we want to be? Like, what would a good life look like? What would a good government look like? How much, uh, how much should we have to ask permission to do things? How much should we, you know, what do we really care about? What, you know, what are the things we want to see happen? Not just what do we want to see go away? By the way, um, thanks for your time tonight. Uh, I didn't know if you were if you were interested in jumping in for ten minutes, but you, you, oh, yeah. you did like an hour and a half with us. Uh, which is great. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you were coming to like talk about one race or share some memes or or, or where this was going to go. But but uh, tell the audience, um, you do some of your own writing. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm right over at uh, Doc Hammer's Anvil over on a uh, Substack. Um, do you, do you want to pull that up and, and share it? Um, uh, yeah, go ahead and share it with our audience. Um, uh, I started reading uh, uh, not too long ago. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you, you were telling the audience, uh, you, you left academia. Do you, mm -hmm. do you want to tell them a little of your story from before the writing as you share your Substack? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I worked, I worked in a supply chain for a number of years. I got interested in economics real seriously again, and, uh, ended up kind of in a real truncated view is went to, went to grad school, got my doctorate, all that. Uh, first job was at a small, uh, college and a bit in the business school part of it out in uh, Minnesota. And well, my neck's still a little bit sore from the uh, lynching I got from the, uh, <laughs> from the uh, HR department there after two years, I went from being one of the most popular professors to being like, nope, you're out. We're not, we're not renewing your contract and things like that. And wait, wait, say, say that again. I don't understand. Uh, without going into too much detail, it's a very Kafka-esque uh, HR hearing where it's, you said something that was very bad. Oh, Lord. What you said, who's accusing you or any other details? Yeah, and, you know, there's some of these high profile stories, right? You know, uh, whether it's Roland Fryer or, you know, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying, or, uh, you know, I don't know what some of the other examples are, but I, I wonder how many of these stories are there out there that aren't high, high profile, right? Oh, yeah. and, and I didn't know this about your story. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And so... You know, I'm, I kind of went back to industry and stuff and, you know, back working in supply chain and things like that. But uh, since I missed teaching a lot, I ended up saying, okay, well, you know, I'm going to write and that'll be my outlet for this sort of thing and these yeah. sort of brain energies. Uh, oh, I'll go ahead and share this with you right now. Um, and, and I don't, I don't, so I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, I, I, I made the decision as a student that I didn't want to do academia partially because mm -hmm. I got offered money to, to fake research when I was 18 years old. Um, oh. after I, yeah, and, and this is, it's a long story and, and I should probably just tell it another day. But um, I, I, I was very quickly soured on the universities um, once I got there. And I, I thought that it was going to be like an explosion of freedom and creativity. And it felt like just the opposite. And uh, um, I, I wound up like going to work at an insurance company doing actuarial work and mm -hmm. wound up joining, um, building a debate team in a school that didn't have a debate team. So it was student run. I was president of the debate team. Um, and, uh, you know, like four of us managed it and it wound up being like 20 something people after we built it. Uh, basically I was doing everything, but, but what like my classes were supposed to be about, it always felt like, like the classes were, were just, uh, you know, most, and, and maybe it was cause I had to take too many of this credit and that credit that that's at least partially true. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, um, I don't know. I, I felt like, uh, that there was a lot of philosophical steering that just seemed like poison to me. 
And this is 1990s, you know, this is 1995, you know, eight, it was 1998. Um, I I got an offer from Wall Street at one of the big hedge funds, uh, D.E. Shaw in in Manhattan. And, um, uh, and the, the, you know, they, they brought me an interview. I I didn't know before I went for the interview, I was like, you know, are are they going to want me? Like, I I certainly have certain skill sets. Um, but I, you know, I, I had the interview, sounded like I was going to get the job, stopped going to class immediately, <laughs> you know, just never returned. Right. So I have like two and a half years, you know, college credit. I, I I'm never going to finish it. Um, okay, I, 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 but I went to college thinking I was going to be a professor that I was going to be a math. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but uh, after wall street, I did educational technology and I, you know, I've spent most of my adult life thinking about education and educational networks. So at some point at the beginning of the pandemic, I was building another education company. And I dropped doing that because there wasn't there weren't enough people doing real pandemic research, especially especially on the stats side and especially on the the documentation side, like taking notes, being able to put together stories. Like one Mm -hmm. of my first articles was about how nobody before March 19th, when Trump spoke about it, nobody in the press was discussing hydroxychloroquine at all, which is totally weird, given that all the researchers for for 15 years had been saying this is the first thing we should try off the shelf. Yeah, Uh, that chloroquine showed in vitro. Um, uh, you know, promise and, um, and that it was like, it's like the most repurposed drug ever. Right. Um, so it, it, I could see that, that on a, a level of putting together certain logic, paying attention to certain, you know, overall details and stats that that wasn't being done. So I dropped everything, but I, I do plan at some point and I intend for rounding the earth to be an educational brand. Like I'm wondering how can I bring more people together? I've talked to Jessica Rose about this. Um, I've, I've talked to several people about, Hey, you know, maybe we sh- what we should be doing is forming an educational network and maybe it should, it should be building into a company, um, in order to, uh, have education for the people who are looking to build parallel society. Yeah. So I, you know, now, now that we have this connection, um, you know, it, it's a conversation we should be starting and building within our community. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, and it's amazing. Like you were saying how in you know, college, you always felt that kind of that push and that push. Now it is more a straight arm shove. Um, I mean, I had students, I mean, this was, you know, like 2018, 2019, you know, I had students coming to me, you know, that would basically live in my office and be like, you know, I can't talk to people about stuff on campus. You know, like if you were anywhere to the right of Mao, you were way crazy extremist in the school. And, you know, there was, you know, I, I started, started up a book club and, you know, we read like Animal Farm in 1984. And these are students were like, I'd never even heard of these books. And I was like, I know, I weep, I weep for your generation. But it was like, you know, you see that and like, it just, you see the clicking in their head and going, I'm not the weird one here. Like all of their lives, you could tell these people have been kind of, you know, it was like them, their families, and maybe a couple friends. And then all the rest of the world telling them they were crazy. You know, all of their school teachers, all of the, uh, you know, the good kids at school who listen to what all the teachers say and, you know, parrot all of their words and they go to college and all of the professors are pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, and there was so many, you could see a lot of them were like thinking like, God, maybe it is me. Maybe I'm just this crazy and I need to give up on life because everyone seems to get it but me, you know, and I think, you know, there's a lot of virtue in having that, that parallel society where it's like, look, this isn't the only way to live. And maybe they're going to be the ones that have power now, but a lot of people have been thinking about this and a lot of people have been dealing with exactly these problems for the longest time. I mean, that was the other thing with, you know, 1984, you know, it was like, when was this written again? Like, was it written in 1984? Like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, 
pushing a hundred years and, old, and it's still as relevant I, today as it was when it was written. Did, did you see the, the article that I wrote on Animal Farm a few weeks ago? Oh no, I didn't. I missed that one. <clears throat> um, I, so it, it, it's it's probably twenty articles back at this point. But I um, uh, there was a U.S. military operation where they they um, they the CIA was involved. Um, a bunch of people were involved. One one of the plumbers from from Watergate was actually involved in this too. Um, <clears throat> after Animal Farm came out, uh, they made a propaganda cartoon out of the story from the book. Oh, I remember that. Holy shit. And so this wasn't just like, you know, cartoonists who were celebrating the book and turning it into a cartoon. This was an intelligence operation, right? Oh, is that so, what that was? Oh, yes. Crap. Yes. And, and it, it became a hit and many more people have watched the cartoon than have read the book. Right. All right, at least, yeah. I, I actually I, I shouldn't say that. I, I, I don't know if, if that's true, but um, I, 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 yeah. I, I do know that, that like in my generation, um, there were a lot of people who didn't know the ending of Animal Farm because they had seen the cartoon. They changed oh. the ending, right? And this, this is one of those times when you realize like how much the intelligence community is involved in steering the public. Um, where in the book, in the book, the way the book ends is, is it's extraordinarily sad. Right. Um, oh, yeah. You, you yeah. have all the animals they're gathering around and Napoleon's Napoleon's like, you know, by the way, um, the farm is is called uh, was it called like Manor House. Did he, is they renamed Animal Farm? Yeah. And all the animals were like, yay. And he was like, and, and by the way, it was never called Animal Farm to begin with. And all the animals were like, OK. Right. It, it, yeah. It's not it's not just that you have this bully totalitarian dictator. It's that it's that over time, it's so corrosive to the mind that literally people can be told something and it's like instant hypnosis. You know, they, they literally didn't even realize how they had gotten there. Then as the animals are, are walking away from that, there's a, there's a ruckus and they turn and the, the, the uh, Napoleon is in like a knife fight over a poker game with yeah. the, with the gentleman farmer from the next door. And, and the thing is the animals can't distinguish who is who, and they yep. can't tell who started the fight. In other words, when nations start to war in a totalitarian era, the people don't even know who's right and who's wrong or what's being fought about. Well, know, see, even, I think it's even a little more dastardly than that. Is that at, by the end of it, they realize that, you know, it seems trite to say old new, here's the new boss, same as the old boss. But I think it's very much the case. It's like, you know, it's the exact same. We went through all of this and we're right back to where we started. You know, it's the same thing as, you know, we have, we put somebody else in charge, but it's the same demon with the same face. But but, but they are worse off though, right? Because they, they, they were part of the process and they were bullied to get there and they had no memory at the end, right? Um, oh, yeah. you, you know, some of them had died along the way. It, like they, they were, they were not full of the same energy they were. So, so they, oh, no, know, no, but I mean, they, they, they weren't equally even, bad as they had been with their former human. They, they were worse life. off. They yeah. were worse off even, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. Um, but, but one of the things, one of the things that I think was important to Orwell, like, mm -hmm. right, this cartoon was made. The, the reason the cartoon was made is because it was like East, East versus West pro, or West versus East propaganda. Yeah. Right. Let, let's show how bad it is on the Soviet side of the fence. Right. But, and, but Orwell, he named the pig Napoleon for a reason, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Napoleon was a Western general and he was a bully. And he was somebody who took control when when things were in disarray. Yeah, you know what he called? Uh, you know what he he called the pig in the French version of the book? Oh no, I didn't. What? He called him Caesar. 
right? You don't want to insult the French. You still want the book to sell there. You want people to read the story. Yeah. yeah. But but in both cases, it's a Western leader. But he yeah. did recognize he did recognize that he, that the story of, of where the world was going wasn't completely told by telling Animal Farm. Then he wrote 1984. He wanted people to see. Look, it's not that there's two sides of this fence and that's going on on the other side, right? That was never his intention. It was the world is moving in this direction. Pay attention. Oh yeah. Well, and it's it's even deeper than that too, and it, it really hits in a way that speaks today. Like um, if you read his um, homage to Catalonia when he was in the Spanish Civil War, you know one of his big, well, two of his big influences was one, the communist backside of the uh god it's complicated <laughs> but without getting into all the weird acronyms you know and the uh the socialist communist not franco and his fascist side of the spanish civil war the communists were killing off all the socialists and declaring them heretics and you know bad wrong and things like that and executing them and trying to get rid of them as so they could be the ones in control, even though they were losing the war as a result, they were killing off their allies because it was a socialist, communist, trade unionist whole thing going on there. But at the same time, so he gets shot in the neck, manages to survive. He and his wife go through all of this rigmarole of flee Spain, wind up back in Britain. And he's finding out that all the newspapers were lying about what was going on in, uh, in Spain, not just the you know, what we would call the right wing or the anti-socialist newspapers, but the socialist newspapers were lying about what was going on in Spain that he knew from firsthand. The communist newspapers were lying about what was going on in Spain. And that's apparently what got him noodling on the fact that all of it is lies all of the time. Like none of this can be trusted. And this use of the propaganda and, you know, like the memory hole where you just throw things and now no one ever knows again. And we're just going to completely rewrite everything so that people never actually know what's going on. That was huge in his mind. And that was, I mean, he remained apparently a, a socialist till the end of his days, but he was an ardent anti-communist. And it seems in part really just, I mean, he was anti-state power in that sense where he was like, you know, these people, once they get the power, that's all it's about. You know, and so you have like a 1984, the, the inner party they don't even hand off power to their kids. And they're not even happy themselves. They're just enjoying the power. You know, it's not like they have all this great luxury. They're only a little step above everybody else. But the point is they have the power and they can wield it. And I think that was, God, it, wow, as I wrote my blog, it's like, you know, in a way, 1984 is strangely comforting in the fact, like, hey, someone's been there before. They've got that idea. This isn't a new thing we're dealing with fresh and, you know, we have to figure it out from scratch. Oh gosh. Yeah. And this is leading to, I, I love this conversation. I've also during the pandemic and, and with some of my writing, I've had people go, why don't you stick to statistics? Which is, which is sort of funny to me because like in my adult life, you know, probably 1% of my time is spent on serious math. You know um, I, I spend more time yeah. on economics, on present, on, on writing, figuring out how to communicate and teach um, yeah. lots of things though. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, be a specialist and do this one thing because specialists get get used, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and and they wind up only understanding the BS in their corner of the world, and they have that Gelman amnesia. Um, you know, if if you don't also make yourself a student of history, uh, if you don't understand what statistics are, where, where they come from, if you if you don't know the whole <laughs> landscape, you're almost by definition misusing them. Yeah. So you need to become a student of history 
I think, to make the best use of statistics. One of the things I noticed just recently, just uh, the article that I put out, uh, oh, gosh, like less than 20 hours ago, um, it, the Spanish flu is one of these things where once you read about it, you see these fragments of propaganda from history. Where did the Spanish flu come from? Why is it called the Spanish flu? Apparently Kentucky, last I heard. <laughs> was it Kansas? I think it was actually oh, Kansas. Kansas, yeah. Kansas. Was, um, but but all over Europe, there was a there was like this pinball game of who to blame it on. Yeah. Right? Like the Germans called it like the Russian menace or something like that, or, or the Russian <laughs> sickness. Um, maybe the Italians called it the the German, I don't know, something or other. Everybody in oh, Europe yeah. was naming yeah. it something different. But why is it the Spanish flu? It's because the UK had more power and better newspapers. Yep. And the UK was blaming it on Spain, right? So yeah. it, it was it was the rivalries going on at the time. And so if you don't look back in history, you never begin, you never see like these fragments. That's a fragment of totalitarianism is what that is. Everybody is creating a fabricated story all the time, all the time. Yeah. And well, so and you what's have scary to is, is that it doesn't, it's so random in how it works out too. I mean, it's not, it just happened to be that the Brits had the better newspapers and the better, you know, storytelling at the time. Okay, now it's a Spanish flu. It has no correlation with reality. It's just, oh, this happened to be at this moment what worked and what was expedient. And that becomes what everybody knows. And you, that, that, that's what, you know, I, I see to see that more and more is how much, you know, humans want to have that someone's in charge. This is all intentional. Because at least if it's intentional, you can get a better person to control it who has better intent and you'll get a better outcome. What's really horrifying is that the process is set up so that you have that power, but the intent doesn't matter. That it's really just a roll of the dice and whatever happens to be going on that day, boop, here's the answer today, but that's going to get fed back in and feed the answer tomorrow, which will be something different. You. And then what do you do? Do you replace everybody or do you burn the system down and start over and maybe have something better? Yeah. I mean, and I'm, and I'm being serious. It really is scary to me to think about, you know, how much of it is entirely out of our control. And yeah, and history is written by the victors, but also the people that aren't even involved and who maybe are tangentially had a cousin who was dating a victor once and they don't like them very much. And then it would, it's just. Yeah. And these victors, okay. You know, Caesar, Napoleon, you know, people who do Hitler, people who take control during disarray, right? Yeah. yeah. Is there an alternative, right? And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to tell this story right now, but um, it, and I, I don't know how people are going to view this. I, I don't consider myself um, somebody who proselytizes. Um, but, but you know, the the story of of like Christianity starting, and and, and I, I'll say this: I think like on an institutional level, um, you know, Christianity has often been captured and taken mm -hmm. it in, in different directions. And, uh, and, and by the way, uh, maybe, maybe the best historical conspiracy theorist over, uh, you know, Christian institutional capture is Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, people should, should go back and, and read his, his writings about, you know, in fact, in fact, he was the first person ever allowed in Cambridge who didn't take the uh, oath of the Trinity. Anyway, mm -hmm. going, going back, going back, you know, to me, to me, what's interesting about the story of Christianity, what not the, one of one of the several most interesting things about Christianity is that it was a network. It was a decentralized network. Mm -hmm. You have uh, you have these. I don't know. You, you want to call them radicals, but you know, it's a word that can mean a lot of things. You have these people who are looking at at 
you know, Roman power and the Roman system. And they're just like, no, we need our own society. You know, we, we need, we need something that's going to survive when this thing collapses, it's going to collapse. And you, you don't hear as much of that, in the discussion of, of the start of Christianity, but, but it's there. It's, it's underlying a lot of what happens as these people come together and uh, we can call, you know, Jesus, their leader or whatever disciples, apostles, um, yeah, and and the story of of going down to the fishing village, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is, you have the people who are close enough in. You have the intellectuals, the educated class, who are Jesus and his immediate followers. But they look around and they're like, you know what, you can't have a decentralized network without those people too. We we need we need to go hold hands with them, you know. Blessed are they who haven't had to think about this, <laughs> and, you know, not quite, but, but maybe almost right. Um, blessed are they who, who never got into the, to the political realm that, that we're in. Um, but you know, we're, we're not better. We need to go down there and not be better than them. You know, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't go down all the, all superior, like, right. Um, because the only way that you build a network is to network. Yeah. Right. Is to reach out beyond your community and make a community of communities. And certainly it is the case that that fabric of community survived much longer than the Roman Empire. But that Roman Empire, I mean, that was Reich one. It keeps coming back again. I, I think that what we're living through right now is Reich four. I, I think that's probably the best description of it. Hopefully, you know, I, I fear that it's going to be the worst of the four. I fear that we can't stop even the pain that they've set in motion. But it will end. It will end, and the way to have something thereafter. And maybe I'll pull back up the very first meme that I shared today. Um, one of the one of the uh, military guys in one of the chat communities I'm in <laughs> offered this one up. Um, I, I have a whole bunch of other memes, and I didn't get to share them tonight. We we went in different directions. You know, this is going to be an election, but we're we're going very philosophical. Uh, but uh, you know, I, it, there it is, right there, right. But if if you want the network of strong people who can create good times again, um, you know, reach out to everybody. So, you know, and, and, and on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to close things out. Uh, I've been sitting here and, and apologize to everybody. You've seen me take five or six bites of dinner. <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm going to go reheat it now and, and, and sit down and actually um, get a meal in me. Uh, but thanks everybody for coming and watching and thanks. Thanks doc hammer. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you guys know his Substack now, uh, which, which I, I only recently discovered on, uh, uh, but he 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 has uh, an economic mind, and and uh, with with when which he explores uh, a number of topics. Um, it's good stuff. Thanks for joining us tonight, and you know, spend Absolutely. Thanks a lot for opening up the invitation and uh, putting up with me. <laughs> All right. Um. Let's see. Uh, I I usually let um, Liam operate the buttons, but let's see how I, I have to go find him. Let's see what I could do.